You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Check out the Weedsman Podcast, Tuesdays and Fridays on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. My name's Wilson. You wrote me about my daughter. This bloke she was bunked up with. Terry Valentine. What's he got to say for himself? You tell him. Get to give what I'm after. You tell him I'm coming. Tell him I'm coming. Jenny never told you about her dad. What dad? When I was in prison for nine years, he was released last month. As long as nobody can connect anything to me. I'm a really desperate man. I won't get to get what I'm after till the day I die. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, my co-host, Mr. Mike White. Glad to be away from the trouble and on the dog with you, you Berkeley hunt. Well, this week we're looking at The Limey, the 1999 film from director Steven Soderbergh. The film tells the tale of Wilson, a recently released career criminal from the UK who heads to LA to figure out what happened to his daughter, Jennifer. Along the way, Wilson teams up with Eddie, played by Luis Guzman, and Elaine, played by Leslie Ann Warren, as he seeks revenge on her former boyfriend, famous record producer Terry Valentine, played by Peter Fonda. It's a tale of loss, revenge, the 1960s, and more. And we'll be getting into spoilers on this one, so if you haven't seen The Limey and uh, you don't want us to wreck it for you, turn us off, go watch it, and then come back, because as you know, we'll be waiting for you. So, Mr. Mike, when was the first time you saw The Limey, and what did you think? I saw The Limey in 1999 at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it was a rare time that I actually went to a public screening rather than like a press and industry screening. And so that was kind of cool because when you go to the press and industry screenings, you don't usually get any kind of like introduction. There's no Q&A with the stars afterwards or anything like that. So this was kind of nice. I got to see Soderbergh introduce the film, he and Terrence Stamp. And Soderbergh... In his uh, incredible way, he gets up there and he's like, okay, I know the show's starting late here, so don't worry. This movie's nice and short, 90 minutes, get you in and out, no worries. (laughs) 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 And then he starts talking about... uh, He's like, you know, just so so you know, this movie uses a song that's also being used in another movie this year, and I think they use it a lot better. So he was talking about The Seeker by The Who, which was also being used that year in American, was it American Beauty? Yeah. American Beauty doesn't really hold up for me. The Limey definitely does. I really enjoyed this film the first time I saw it, and it was one of those where I've owned this thing on DVD for years, and I haven't really gone back to rewatch it, mostly because it's just kind of there in my brain. I can kind of see it whenever I want to. I mean, I remembered so much of it perfectly when I was re-watching it again for the show. I was like, yep, everything I remember, it, which is kind of remarkable just because it's presented in a very unique style, and uh, we'll definitely be talking about that, I'm sure. Yeah, as for me, this was one of the films that was part of the 
slate of movies that came through the main art theater when I worked there in 99 and 2000. We've talked about a few of them on the show, like Titus and then also uh, Requiem for a Dream. And we'll be talking uh, later this year about another Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. But this one really had a lot of impact on me because at the time I was just getting into French New Wave and the whole idea of jump cuts and things like that. But in here they do it a little bit different. I knew, obviously, Peter Fonda from Easy Rider and Terrence Stamp, which I'd have to say probably the closest film to this that I had seen of him that had just been out recently was Bowfinger, and he's, he was great in that, and that's another one I'd love to do on the show. But it was such a great piece when I saw it in the theater, and it really knocked me out. And I remember cleaning the theater <laughs> To the, to, and like sitting in the back in those final scenes and just sort of watching the final scenes and, and really getting the feel of this because there really is nothing like working in a movie theater when there is a movie that you like and then you get to see it sort of in bits as you go in and you know do checks to make sure people aren't throwing stuff around or making a bunch of noise and then obviously you have to trash the theater at the end so the limey was one of those that came through the main art theater that stuck with me all those years it is a highly memorable film. The performances are amazing, and yeah, the way that it is presented is just really kind of remarkable. And I, I just love the way that it feels. It feels like you're in all places in time all at once, which is a really interesting way to be able to pre- present a story which could normally just be A to B to C. And in this one, it's your your famous Godard line about, you know, a movie has a beginning, middle, and end, and not necessarily in that order. In this case, sometimes it feels like all three of them are happening at once. And it's really a nice way to kind of challenge the audience, but also make you more interested in the film. How is this all going to fit together? Where does this line that you hear at the beginning actually fit in the timeline of the film? And I just really like the way that they did this. Oh, and it's funny. You said when Soderbergh introduced it, he said, yeah, um, it's in, it's out, it's fast. And I think that they used the Who better in the other film. I basically came to realize on this most recent viewing that the setup of this movie, it depends on sort of where you want to place it, that you know what's going on in either the first 30 seconds or I would say minute and a half. And you would know exactly who you're looking at into a particular way and what it is that they're seeking. So the first thing is over black and you hear Terrence Stamp's voice saying, tell me, tell me, tell me about Jenny. Then it cuts to the seeker starts and sort of this fuzzy, focus into rack focus of Wilson as he walks out of LAX. And those sort of together is the first 30 seconds. And that kind of says to you, okay, that's all you need to know is here's your guy. Here's your seeker. He wants to find out what happened to this Jenny character. By the time he gets to the motel as the seeker's still playing, he's in the back of the taxi and all of that stuff. And he starts going through his things and he's unfolding the piece of paper out of the letter, which is the news story about this, this girl it's then that we start to understand the connections a little more and we start to understand sort of the bigger idea. So like I said, it's either 30 seconds in or about a minute and a half to two minutes in. So it's like this movie's very lean. And I think the one thing that makes it sort of extra and special, because you could, like you said, you could do it very linear. But what makes it really special 
is the editing concepts. And instead of it being sort of this um, French New Wave sort of take on cutting out time to speed things up in a particular way, uh, the, the boring parts, as uh, Anna Karina would often say in uh, like Parallel Fou and things like that in the, the Godard films, it's more about giving you these internal ideas and uh, like you were saying, sort of skipping between forward and back. And then also almost in, like I, I've never really seen a movie work in terms of editing and montage to be able to sort of give you these multi levels of, um, of emotionality of what people are thinking by showing you their face, but they're not talking, but you hear it, but it's not a voiceover. Yeah. It's almost like a thought, but then it's also dialogue. So it kind of is, is playing on multiple levels there too. It reminds me a little bit of uh, um, Renee's. Um, he's the one that did last year, Marion Bad, I think. It just that kind of, you know, like um, it, it's like Godard, but less snotty and kind of more refined. And that's kind of what I'm getting from the Limey as well. And I think it's really clever, you know, going back to The Seeker. I mean, The Seeker is one of those songs where it's it's got a famous break in it you know it's going 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 and then it stops there's a four count and then the song continues on and i love that it stops and the song never continues on and it just kind of keeps you in suspense for you could say the entire movie it always kind of reminds me of like you know watching vertigo when you see scotty up there kind of hanging from the the rooftop and you never see him rescued so you could almost think that the whole movie is kind of he's in peril you know you start with that peril and you never see it resolved the song starts in this movie and it never resolves and it just kind of keeps you in that level keeps you going keeps you wanting keeps you digging at this you know you're waiting for the guitar to come back in and it never does and it's kind of a nice way to set this up as far as just we're going to take you to a certain place and then you have to worry about the rest of this. Well, the other thing that's also nice, and this is obviously has very little to do with the film, but it's a it's a funny little bit of, I guess, coincidental trivia. Terrence Stamp obviously came into cinema in the 60s and swinging London, and there's obvious reference to that throughout the film. But his brother was one of the original managers for The Who. So huh. there's also this connection between Stamp and the Who in a way. So it's if you're into music and you're into film and you know a little bit about Terrence Stamp and also his brother, it's also kind of funny. Well, it's interesting the way that Soderbergh and Dobbs are playing with known quantities versus the unknown and having Terrence Stamp, who is this known quantity from the late 60s, and putting him against Peter Fonda, who's another quantity from the end of the 60s, and, you know, uh, uh, Barry Newman, who, you know, we talked about before on the show on Vanishing Point, who is in other movies besides Vanishing Point, but that's definitely, for me, the one that always stands out, early 70s with that one. And there's just so many people where you have these expectations of what they are, whether they're playing against type or not, but they are all of these people who were pretty much famous all at the same time and then it's like it's nice that so many of our main characters are 50 60 70 years old when it comes to this movie it's you know not necessarily the the young hot starlets i mean the the previous film to this that soderbergh directed was out of sight where you've got george clooney and j-lo and it's like you know you can't get two hotter stars at least at that moment together in one film and he goes completely against that with this one with this kind of you know 
sestagenarian cast, which I just found to be fantastic. And the thing that's nice about it is that there are these little references, these little digs, and there's really like two main sort of um, conversations related to the 60s. And it's interesting the way that he plays them. The first one sort of shows this level of who Terry Valentine is once we get to meet him. It's done in montage. And then there's this girl swimming in the pool. And he's obviously older than her. And until she starts to talk to him, we don't necessarily know. Is this his daughter, his niece, uh, whatever. But then through the conversation, we learn that not only are they a couple, but he picked out her name. Adhara. I remember telling your parents, if you're looking for a name, you can't go wrong with a constellation. Well, I used to hate it. Now I like it. Well, it could be worse. They could have called you Reticulum, Pleiades. <laughs> God, you're beautiful. Is there anything in this world that you want or need? Well, I want to know why you need that scary man in your house. Gordon? Oh, he's been with me for years. He's not as tough as he looks. And what good is he? Heard of loyalty? Yeah. I'm one of the things that make me happy. Well, my thing? Well, you're certainly not a person. I'm not. No? You're not specific enough to be a person. You're more like um, a vibe. So it leads to this kind of like creepy little commentary on older men and younger women a little bit. I, I think that Soderbergh's having a little bit of fun in that spot with that whole scene because someone like Fonda, as far as I know, and, and to be honest, I don't know too much about his personal life. I don't think ever was in that realm, but there were a lot of guys like him from that era who were in that realm of dating you know, women who were young enough to be their daughters. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there's even a story at one point, which according to the audio commentary was not necessarily an ad lib, but was from Peter Fonda's biography where he's talking about being on a motorcycle and almost crashing into this deer and all this. And I was coming back from a motorcycle classic in a place called Sturgis, South Dakota, and uh, my motorcycle on U.S. Highway 14. And just that side of Spotted Horse, I ran into a deer. I hit a deer. I had no chance, even though the highway had patrol had uh, highway people had mowed the sides where the culverts were. They couldn't mow, and this doe just jumped right in front of the bike. I had a chance to say one word. It was fuck, and I hit it. I know this. If the bullets come in my way and I see my name on it, I won't be calling for my mother. <laughs> But, man, I tell you, I think the only reason I'm alive and telling this story now is because of the big FL front end and that solid tire in my fat boy. Because we always associate, or at least I always associate, Peter Fonda with Easy Rider. So yeah. him telling a story about a motorcycle is really nice way to kind of go back. And then, like... Um, Wild Angels uh, as well, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And then Barry Newman wearing those kind of tinted sunglasses and everything reminds me of his character in... the. It, in the vanishing point as well, you know, especially like those kind of like amber sunglasses he wears through so much of the film. And yeah, it's just, uh, and again, you know, very much a driving movie and there's a lot of driving scenes in this, some very high speed chases. And it's just, yeah, it's nice that we echo with those guys. And then of course there's the huge echo with Terrence Stamp by 
utilizing scenes from Poor Cow, a film that was made in the late 60s by Ken Loach, using those as flashback scenes and kind of integrating the people that were in that film and kind of reinterpreting some of the story of the film to match with Wilson's backstory is fantastic. Yeah, and the other sort of piece of 60s when it comes to the Terry Valentine character is what I'll just call the 60s speech. The young woman again, who he's with, is in the tub, and he's sort of picking at his teeth and getting ready for this party that they're going to have. And she's talking about the Fillmore posters that are on the wall. It must have been a time, huh? A golden moment. Have you ever dreamed about a place you never really recalled being to before? A place that maybe only exists in your imagination? Someplace far away, half remembered when you wake up. When you were there, though, you knew the language. You knew your way around. That was the 60s. No, it wasn't that either. It was just 66 and early 67. That's all it was. I sort of read this in two ways. One is the idea of, of collecting things and how when you look throughout his house, you know, he's got like the records and all this other stuff. So he's earned or collected these things, which you could also, I guess, consider her part of his collection in some way. So oh, yeah. it's that macho idea. And then he gives this discussion about, well, the 60s weren't really the 60s. It was only this short period of time. And to try and like nail it down, I guess, is trying to like nail a cloud to the wall or something. It's really was this sort of amorphous thing that I guess we really didn't even know was happening until basically it was over, which in a way kind of reminds me of the show we did a couple of weeks ago when we did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and the so-called wave speech that Thompson gives about looking back and going, wow, we had all this stuff and now it's gone. So there's this sense of that, that I get with both um, the Terry Valentine character and also with the Wilson character that they're looking backwards and there's a sense of loss. I mean, with Wilson, it's obvious. I mean, his daughter's gone and also a loss of time and a loss of connection and the fact that he's been locked up most of his life. And then with Terry Valentine, it seems to be this sense of loss, but he was a guy who could have everything. So what is he, what has he really lost? You know, what, where, where is his loss? And I think when we get to the end, we start to understand more what his loss is really about. And his loss is about sort of this, I guess, maybe um, for lack of a better term, sort of a spiritual or um, love connection in a, in a true deeper sense. And I, and I think that we get, we learn throughout the film that the Jennifer Wilson character really challenged him in a way that no one else that he had as a romantic interest had. He definitely has his trophies. You know, you talked about the records and everything, and he lives in this, basically, for all intents and purposes, it's a castle. And it's built on stilts. I think Louis Guzman at one point says, you know, you're standing on hope. You know, there is nothing else there. You know, in both that house and the other house that he's, he's in, kind of remind me of these houses from, like, North by Northwest, where they're kind of these Frank Lloyd Wright, 
type of things where it almost feels like they're built upside down where you're, you're everything's on the narrowest point kind of thing and he's got the you know the little statuettes that are going on and then he's got that collection of pictures and we see the picture of Jenny there on the wall which then Wilson ends up taking and that's kind of yeah like his trophies like you know maybe these are all the women that he's bedded before and I love the introduction of the Terry Valentine character which is kind of like a little mini music video inside of this movie where we're seeing him through so many places in the film again that kind of like loose time interpretation and then the use of the Hollies King Midas in reverse is just so wonderfully placed there as a music choice and then that was really echoed in an earlier draft of the script when Anne Margaret was in the film she has a very brief but very powerful scene with Valentine where she basically goes through his entire life like it's a one huge one page speech where she's just like yo coming up you know every time there was something good he managed to screw it up you know when he first found grass and how great grass was well he ends up ordering a little bit more and then ends up selling it and ends up you know with this drug empire he's the guy who thought let's turn on the videotape and tape our friends while we're all having sex in a hot tub and turn into pornography and sell the pornography it seemed like everything that he was doing he managed to fuck it up somehow and just kind of create this world and then she even talks about his security consultant the Barry Newman character Jim Avery and how he was so ready to kind of fall in line with all this stuff because Terry managed to make this world where everybody was afraid to go outdoors and they all needed security consultants. They needed the security forces because of this horrible place that Terry created through all of his, you know, horrible deeds that he'd done over the years. Like I said, she's in it for just a few minutes, but I think it would have been a great scene. And I know that's the, that's one of those things that Lem Dobbs really kind of still fetches about, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in the show as far as that relationship between Dobbs and Soderbergh, Dobbs being the screenwriter in this case. The film really opens up once we get Wilson and Eddie together. And this is in the first... Four minutes, basically. Uh, oh, yeah. And he shows up at his door, and he's like, not sure who this guy is with the British accent. My name's Wilson. Wilson? You wrote me about my daughter? Oh, uh, yeah. Come in. Who done it, then? Huh? Snuffed her. What are you talking about? I sent you the newspaper clipping, okay? I tell you everything I know. I never said anything about anybody being snuffed. Look, there was an investigation, okay? The car was totaled. Jenny was, her neck was broken, they said, on impact. So she wouldn't have felt the effects of the fire. Those streets up them hills, man, you gotta be careful. You know, you gotta keep your eyes on the ball. Two o'clock in the morning, it's dark. Your mind's a little agitated. You're driving a little too fast. Those curves don't kid around. Could have happened to anybody. I mean, I didn't know Jenny to be reckless, but you know, she'd have a drink here and smoke a little pot, and that was it. Nothing more than that. No. Not my girl. Self-control she had. It was a point of pride. One of the things that I read online is they were looking at 
the limey through the lens of like uh, Don Quixote in a way, in that he becomes sort of the Sancho Panza to his Don Quixote, that they're off on this mission and they're going to go do this thing. And he becomes sort of his, you know, traveling companion and, you know, sounding board. But the thing that I really like about Luis Guzman, he's got some great lines in there. And oh, yeah. especially when he's talking to Leslie Ann Warren about. Hey, Lane, you ever even understand half the shit this guy's saying? No, I know what he means. You know, even if I don't know Cockney rhyming slang and I don't, <laughs> and his accent's a bit too thick, which for me isn't a problem. I, I, I don't have a problem with Terrence Stamps. <laughs> accent here but it's just funny the sort of the interplay between the two because you know wilson's like a straight arrow he's focused it's like i'm going to do this and at times he's like no no no. it's like you can't do that it's like what are you doing and there's all this stuff about american customs that he doesn't understand such as for example when they pull up in front of the mansion where they're going to have this where they just happen upon this party that uh terry valentine's having and Wilson thinks that all of these uh, guards have shown up because of an earlier scene that happened at the terminal where he goes to find out more about Terry Valentine and ends up killing everybody at the terminal. Looks like he's brought in the heavy mob. You're kidding me. Extra muscle. Bodyguards. They look alright though to Wiley's though. You should see him. Patrolling up and down in front of the house. Let me see him, let me see him. All done up like fucking household cavalry. The valets, man. Valets? We mean valets. Who does he think he is? Marcus of fucking Tavistock? Valets, man, valets. They park cars, you know, they're having a party, looks like. Hi. Yeah, they called in the heavy mob. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so good. He's like, oh man, look at that. Yeah, I love the relationship between uh, Guzman and Stamp in this. And, I mean, Louis Guzman has always been a favorite of mine for a long damn time. And to see him in a role this prominent was really a breath of fresh air for me because he's usually like, you know, I mean, he was had a pretty big role in Carlito's way. And he was, you know, showing up in a lot of De Palmas and some other things. And you would see him here and there, but it Boogie was like nights. usually, yeah, but he was usually like kind of relegated to like a side character, not necessarily sharing the spotlight. And in this one, you know, there's another movie that I want to do one of these days, Count of Monte Cristo, where he is like basically the same exact role, but to, you know, Edmond Dantes, to the Count of Monte Cristo himself, and again, has some of the best lines in the entire film. But yeah, just him and Wilson and their relationship is so fantastic. And you talked about how Wilson's kind of like this arrow, this driven man. He's kind of like that, you know, the, the killing machine almost. And it really reminds me of that shot that we have throughout the film where it's Wilson walking in slow motion and that great music that I think it's the Cliff Martinez score going at that point and just how good that music is, how well it matches up and Wilson there in slow-mo just kind of marching along that wall is just like, wow. And, and just kind of shows how driven this person is. We'll talk a bit about some of those influences that we see after the interviews that we have, but just put it this way. If you like Lee Marvin, <laughs> then uh, I, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed in the limey. So going back just a bit, uh, I kind of skipped over it. Once he picks up Eddie, they go to the place that Eddie had taken Jennifer before 
and we see some flashbacks of this where she's sort of in the face of this guy. We don't necessarily know what this place is. All I wrote down is the terminal. And we get the feeling this is like sort of in the warehouse district somewhere in L.A. People are moving stuff around, but who knows what they're moving around. It becomes a little more clear later. He sort of snips his way through the fence and he gets inside and then he starts asking around. And of course, he's doing his Cockney rhyming slang and he's speaking with the accent and they're like, who are you? Like, who let you in here? And he's just trying to find out if they know who Terry Valentine is, if there's a way to get in touch with him. And I love the guy who's just sort of thrown off kilter and sort of <laughs> incredulous that this, you know, crazy Brit has shown up in his office and he tries to push him out the door. Just that whole scene and just the menace and sort of how the menace turns and just little things. Like, for example, one of the great things about this movie that I like, and like you were talking about that, that Anne Margaret scene that was supposed to be in there. I think that while that Anne Margaret scene would have been really nice, I think it may have overstated things and wouldn't have let you use your mind to kind of fill in the gaps. And I think one of the great things about the Limey is that Soderbergh gives you just enough to let you fill in the gaps. And for example, here where he's got him against the wall, and he's like, oh, I know who you are. The only reason you're not dead is I want to find out who the fuck you are. Jennifer Wilson was my daughter. Who the fuck is Jennifer? Hey, 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 wasn't she that chick that showed up down here? Yeah, talk the same way as this cocksucker. Yeah. Yeah. Terry Valentine is a friend of mine. He's a personal friend, and I don't talk about my friends with strangers, but that cunt daughter of yours, she come up here sticking her tits in my face. Who am I? How do I know Terry? What's the nature of our business together? Well, I admire Terry for a lot of things, but I gotta say he, uh, <laughs> let himself get, uh, royally pussy whipped by that fucking bitch. You know what I would like to have done to her? You know what I would like to have done? I bet she would have liked that. It's too bad you had to take a nosedive off that cliff. Probably dried her all up. It's much more sinister when we don't hear what he's saying to him than if he would have said, oh, yeah, you know, I would have liked to have, you know, tied her up and taken a pair of pliers and all of this. That would have lessened the impact. But I think it's more chilling when we don't hear what he's saying to him. And we have to rely on just him just sitting there and he's looking straight ahead and he's just sort of like stone focused. Like it doesn't even phase him that this guy's mm -hmm. saying this, you know, horrible shit to him about what he would do to his daughter. Yeah. Going back to, you know, you were talking about the um, where... Guzman, uh, Eduardo, and uh, Jenny met up. I love that there's this kind of running theme in the film of acting because they met at acting class, and then Leslie Ann Warren works in the movies and everything. And there's just this kind of whole thing about acting overtly. And there's a great scene at one point with uh, uh, Nikki Cat and Joe D'Alessandro on a movie set or kind of off to the side of a movie set. <laughs> Which they have some of the best dialogue. Like, I oh love Nikki Cat's, like, little things where he talks about... Why don't they make shows about people's daily lives you'd be interested in watching, you know? Like, sick old man or skinny little weakling, you know? Big fat guy? Wouldn't you watch a show called Big Fat Guy? I'd watch that fucking shit. Extras? Oh, excuse me, background artists, right? Hey... Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. How's it going? Yeah, Hollywood's great. Yeah, still a loser. Oh, it's like that tits. Jesus, are you gay enough or what? Hello, Studio City. 
bag. Look at this guy. Oh yeah, they need that right away. <laughs> What's the smartest thing that ever came out of a woman's mouth? Einstein's cock. <laughs> Apparently Joe D'Alessandro was not very happy with Nikki Cat about this. <laughs> I found out from a friend uh, who knows D'Alessandro, and he was just like, the kid didn't read what was on the script. You know, it just like didn't like the whole improv. Thing. <laughs> which, which is odd because, you know, once again, here's another 60s icon. And see, this is the thing that's great about the liming. It's not really kind of in your face all that much, right. is that you have sort of the mainstream American independent, which would become New Hollywood star, Peter Fonda. You have the British star, Terrence Stamp. And then you have the Warhol superstar, which is Joe D'Alessandro. So you have all three of them. It's sort of like this film triangle, you know, in a particular way. It's amazing. And so, so yeah, there's this whole idea of the acting that's going on as far as like overt acting, like we are in Hollywood kind of thing and really setting that squarely in Los Angeles. And, you know, Wilson is completely a fish out of water when it comes here. And this whole idea of like being in America, that look around when he gets out of the airport, all this kind of stuff. But then there's the other acting that's going on. And I love some of the scenes where Wilson is kind of putting on an act, especially he and Bill Duke, where Mm -hmm. he kind of comes in and does this whole thing, which is just amazing. And it's like he doesn't necessarily know the lay of the land. So he's just doing this stuff and almost trying to suss it out. And it almost feels like it's a improvisation, almost like Bill Duke had said, okay, here's like two things. I want you to act out this scene and just Duke's reaction or non-reaction to this whole thing is just killer. I love it. <laughs> How you doing then? All right, are you? Now look, Squire, you're the governor here. I can see that. I'm on your manor now. So there's no need to get your niggas in a twist. Whatever this bollocks is that's going down between you and that slag Valentine, it's got nothing to do with me. I couldn't care less, all right, mate? Let me explain to you. When I was in prison, second time, uh, no, tell a lie, third stretch. Yeah, third, third. There was this screw what really had it in for me, and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I sees him in Ola Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his fucking neck. Wallop. But I left him. I could have nobbled him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This burg on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end. Because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear. And you can act accordingly. There's one thing. I don't understand. The thing I don't understand is every motherfucking word you're saying. If this was around as a script when I was in acting class in high school, I would have loved to have played some of these scenes, especially this one between him and Bill Duke. The subtext is really good. It's like, if you can help me, oops, look at that. That file just fell. Oh, I guess you know that now. Hmm. Okay. And just sort of, you know, yeah. If uh, you end up in Big Sur, uh, how did I know you got there kind of thing? Right. (laughs) And it's just so sort of brilliant the way it's played. And and Bill Duke, like I said, like there's there's a lot of real deadpan in here at times. And he is just amazing in that piece where he just sits there behind the desk. 
and Duke, who most of the time, when he's not fighting predators, he's usually a crooked cop. So to have him not be a crooked cop, to me, is one of the best things ever. Like, I thought for sure, as soon as Bill Duke shows up on screen, I'm like, oh man, Wilson is in trouble. This is not going to go well at all. And then even when Duke is explaining what he's doing with the DEA and stuff, at first I'm just like, there's no way what he's saying is true. And then when it ends up to be true, I was like, wow, okay, I completely did not expect that. But I was so pleasantly surprised that that's the way that the scene played out. That's the thing that works so well in here. And this is what I was talking about. It's that there's so much stuff that's understated. Like this does feel like a film from that era to a certain extent. It relies on the smartness of the audience in order to kind of put these things together, to hold the puzzle pieces in their head. It doesn't go to you, nudge. Did you see that nudge? Okay, remember that nudge. It's really asking you to follow the thread. And the fact that it is 90 minutes kind of makes it a lot easier than if it was two and a half hours or something, but it's, it's smartly done. And I think also the editing schematic also kind of helps in that way in terms of how they do it. And, and this is where there's this whole thing about it being a real male film. And this is the thing that I love when he meets the Leslie Ann Warren character, the Elaine character, where she talks to him about, well, yeah, you came all the way here, but for what, like, what are you going to do? What's the deal? You and Terry Valentine at 20 paces? Come on. Is that it? Don't see why not. Are you serious? Have you ever known me not to be? Oh, you fucking guys and your dicks, man. (laughs) What do you expect me to do? Start home doing sweet F.A.? You don't believe it was a car accident? Oh, yeah. She fell asleep at the wheel. Terry is never going to give you that satisfaction. He is not the type. Depends, doesn't it? On what? What makes you so certain? I bloody ask him. Fine. There's the phone. You want his number? Oh, I've got his number. It's just this idea of how men deal with things versus how women deal with things. And then also there's sort of a similar scene in a way when um, Terry Valentine and Avery played by Barry Newman, take everyone and go, let's go to big Sur and get out of town because he's looking for us. So let's go up there and sort of like hunker down and maybe we can flush him out and kill him. The woman that he's with the Terry Valentine's with is like, we'll call the cops. Like, what are you doing? You know, right. so there's this whole thing about like on both ends, just guys being like, I'm going to solve this. I'm a man. I can do this. Just sort of the idea of vengeance being a very male centered thing. And I just like I said, I just love the reaction of of Leslie Ann Warren, where she just basically calls it a big dick contest, you know. Yeah, they're playing cops and robbers. They're playing cowboys and Indians. You know, it reminded me of that whole montage from Fahrenheit 9-11 where it's like, yeah, we're going to smoke them out. You know, we'll get the the troops together and we'll smoke them out. We'll, we'll, We'll drive them out there. And that's so what I thought of as they were doing this. And there's just, uh, yeah, it was, it was a total dick measuring contest. And, you know, Leslie Ann Warren, one of very few females, as you said, and, uh, 
she has been around for a long time as well. She may not look it, but you know, she's been look, acting since the early 1960s. So she's kind of right there with these guys. And then I loved hearing in the audio commentary that her character was kind of similar to a character that was in Arthur Penn's night moves, which really made me happy since I think we're covering that in like two weeks. And I was like, okay, great. This is going to be a great month for Neo Noir on the projection booth. This is terrific. (laughs) (laughs) So she didn't necessarily like, when I think of early Leslie Ann Warren, I always think of, you know, because she's such a quirky actress and she can just do so many things. But I always think of her in the TV movie of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which was this musical version of Superman back in 1975. But yeah, she just plays some weird characters, man. Like um, her in um, Color of Night, the Richard Rush film, just amazing stuff. And this was, I think that was right around this time as well, too. So she kind of had a little bit of a resurgence. But yeah, she is great. She really grounds the film. Between her and Louis Guzman, they really just are kind of the the glue that is holding this together, for me anyway. And then I was also happy that when I was listening to that commentary, that when they were talking about Terry Valentine's uh, girlfriend and then talking about Jenny Wilson, that they were very cognizant that the actresses were similar looking. And I was like, Oh, thank God. I thought I was just losing my mind and couldn't tell who's who. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all about that. It's, you know, playing in what you were saying into that sort of LA California expectation that not only is, it seems to be the expectation among a certain strata of people in that place, but also I would say an expectation of people in middle America, you know, well, of course you live in these fancy houses and, you know, your previous wife looks exactly like your current wife and you know all of this stuff. Right. It's like just sort of this, um, you know, cliche that seems to run through uh, Terry Valentine's life. Do you want to get into the ending here or is there anything else before that? No, I think we're okay. I mean, because this is kind of one of those movies where the ending is kind of at the beginning, which is nice. You know, I mean, the end of the film pretty much plays throughout the entire film because of that whole idea of this fractured time thing, which again is fantastic. Like as I see Wilson on that plane and the way that the sun is coming in on his face, it's just cinematic convention that when you are traveling East, you are facing to the right of the screen. When you're traveling West, you're facing to the left of the screen. Just at least Americans, when we make movies, that's generally how we do it. And so as I see him facing to the right side of the screen with the sun coming in on his, his left-hand side, I'm just like, okay, the mission's been successful. You know, he's okay. Cause I'm getting that telegraph through the entire film, which I really liked. Well, the ending and how it sort of unfolds is that, like we talked about Big Sur, and Terry, of course, has another one of these houses built on trust and faith, you know, on the edge of a cliff, and (laughs) a literal cliffhanger. So he um, moves up to Big Sur, they go up to Big Sur to sort of fortify, and Wilson and Eddie and Elaine end up there, but it's mostly, I think, Wilson who ends up in the house, basically gets through the security, chases... Terry Valentine gets out of the house and finds him on the beach in the moonlight. And that's where we hear that line again 
from that we heard in the beginning in the blackout. Tell me about Jenny. Tell me about Jenny. I needed money. I would have given her anything she wanted, but she didn't. She found out about my deal. She tried to stop me. She said she was going to turn me in. She said she was going to call the cops. I couldn't stop it. It already happened. It was over. She was going to call the cops. She made She had the phone in her hand. She was going to call the cops. She made it. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't do anything. This is where I kind of feel that the ending and the Wilson and Valentine characters, we find them, at least in my mind, sort of mirrors of each other. They're both men who have lost, and there's just a different way that they've lost. Now, instead of the sort of, I guess, the Lee Marvin school of revenge, uh, where I think that if this was done by John Borman in the late 60s, he would have shot him in the head uh, after he heard the story, he realizes that he is a destroyed man, that there is, he's basically dead. There's nothing, you know, there's no reason to kill him. At least that's that's the way I feel about it in the end. If memory serves, Lee Marvin actually doesn't kill anybody in Point Blank. It's always through other means, which is bizarre. I want to say that Val ends up, or Mal, I can't remember what it is in the movie, ends up falling out a window. You know, James B. Seeking kills somebody. So it's always through other means, which always kind of leads me to believe, and I know this is a stretch, but always leads me to believe that Lee Marvin isn't there. It's almost like a wish fulfillment. It, he's almost a ghost through the film. Mm. But I know I'm getting ahead of myself with this one. Yeah, I like that there is that echo because we've seen in Wilson's story, him talking about Jenny and how she and him had this whole routine because he was a criminal from the get-go. She was always threatening me. Can you imagine? If you're naughty, Dad, I'll put the law on you. Promise. She didn't want me to get sent down again, see? And if she got wind that I was planning something, I'll shop you, Dad. I promise I'll shop you. I can see her picking up the phone. Look, Dad, I'm calling the old Bill right now. Came a sort of joke between us, honey. And then it ends up that she does the same thing to Terry Valentine, and I don't think that he realizes that for her it was pretty much an empty threat. He takes it as the real thing and ends up having to kill her because of that, which is just, you know, tears the heart out of you. It's like this whole thing where just this big mistake happens and it just, at least that's my interpretation of it. I don't know if you have the same one or not, but that's how I always read this when it comes to that point where he talks about how she picked up the phone and was threatening to call the cops. And I couldn't have that. Well, that's also the way that it's cut because he tells that story to Leslie Ann Warren's character, to Elaine earlier, where he's like, you know, Dad, I'm going to call the cops. But he knew his daughter well enough to know that she wouldn't do that. But obviously, Terry Valentine didn't know that and felt threatened by the fact that she was, that he thought she was going to call the cops. So so there's this, there's also that mirroring there. I just find that there's a lot of mirrors with them. There's a lot of similarities between them. And like I said, there's this sense of loss 
that I think is common between both the characters. And that's what makes the ending interesting. And then, of course, the ending ending, which I think is sort of the coda, where he's on the plane. And he's talking to the lady about going back home. And I had to go. I was on an oil rig in the North Sea, which is fun, funny for me because actually my uncle does work on an oil rig in the North Sea. <laughs> but his hitch is not nine years. It's usually three weeks on, three weeks off. But anyway, so. Um, and it should have been four other fellas. <laughs> right. So um, he's talking about, yeah, I was there and all this. And, and obviously it's coded language. You know, we know what he means, but. She obviously doesn't. And then there's that use from Poor Cow of him singing Donovan's Colors and just the lyric from that. Freedom is a word I rarely use without thinking. Mm-hmm. Without thinking. Uh-huh. Of the time. Of the time when I was loved. Very good. Yeah? Yeah. Getting better, aren't I? Yeah. Huh. And I remember when I saw it, and even when I just rewatched it now, and it's been probably, I don't know, a good five years or more since I've seen this last, it kind of chokes me up a little bit. Him singing that, and, you know, it's just one of those coincidental ironies that Soderbergh knew this film, he picked this film, and there happens to be that scene in that film, which when you watch Poor Cow, and we'll talk a little bit about that after the interviews, has a different sort of meaning there. But once again, this is the whole, you know, Sergei Eisenstein montage theory, <laughs> where if you take that and you put it next to something else, it now has a completely different feeling. And for me, him singing Donovan's Colors it really is about loss. And you're just like, oh, Wow. No, it was the same way. And yeah, it just kind of, it takes your breath away a little bit, which is something that not a lot of movies do for you. That's why we're talking about it this week. (laughs) So we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews with two men who've written books about filmmaker Steven Soderbergh. The first is with author and film teacher Mark Gallagher, and the second with author, teacher, and film programmer Anthony Kaufman, after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, 
you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hogwash. Be in the car accident, you just use a little bit, it'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> it'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Gallagher. I'm an associate professor of film and television studies at the University of Nottingham, where I work on uh, American independent cinema and contemporary Chinese and Hong Kong cinema, film genre, and a number of other different subjects, uh, including filmmakers and authorship and Steven Soderbergh. Tell me about your interest in Steven Soderbergh. How did that develop for you? I guess it started in the 1990s when, uh, you know, he'd been on a lot of people's radars at the end of the 80s after Sex, Lies, and Videotape, um, which registered in some respects with me. Uh, And then what really happened was that uh, as he started making more films, each of them seemed just completely different from the last. Uh, And whereas... So many directors, especially independent filmmakers who are also, say, writer-directors, come in with a particular sensibility that they uh, trace across a body of work. 
it seemed like his sensibility was always changing or the sensibility was that there was a sensibility of constant mutation and experimentation. So it was that, that kind of variety that you would never know what to expect um, that some of his work would relate to other types of cinema that was happening at the time or it happened in the past. Uh, and then there'd be another film coming out from him that was just the diametric opposite of that. So the difference between the difference from something like Sex Lies and Videotape to then even moving to Kafka uh, and then to King of the Hill and then to the Underneath and Schizopolis. Already early on in that, uh, that career, there was just a stunning variety of work that I hadn't necessarily seen with other people. So it was just that kind of like unbridled creativity in the sense that you never knew what you were going to get uh, and it would rarely be what you were looking for or whatever that would be, um, but it was always going to be something interesting and would have a compelling take on whatever material is chosen. When you look further out throughout his you know, entire body of work now, what is it that you find interesting and maybe certain maybe themes that keep coming back throughout his work? I think the big things for me would be maybe probably not. Uh, maybe there would be three. I'd say one, experimentation of every possible kind, uh, experimentation in genre, experimentation outside of genre, experimentation in different modes, switching from film to television, uh, to doing some writing, if not writing straight out novels, um, doing strange versions of books, uh, and yeah, most recently doing a Twitter novel or novella, uh, to doing playwriting, uh, to working sometimes only as a director of photography and not as a director, um, to doing some photographic work and painting as well. So that kind of variety and experimenting in all those different forms, never doing something uh, that was really conventional for whatever form he was in. Uh, the second thing I think would be collaboration, the sense that um, there was a group of people he was going to be working with repeatedly, um, and sometimes those collaborators were going to be the same for a long period of time, say with someone like George Clooney as a lead actor in his films or as a producing partner in Section 8. Uh, and then sometimes the collaborations were, were going to shift. So he'd have people he would do uh, who'd have to do the music for his films. Uh, but often those people would only do the music for two or three films. Or he would return to working with someone he'd worked with 10 years before. So there was a group of collaborators, but people would sort of come in and out of that group at the same time, it wasn't like uh, Martin Scorsese where, you know, the same uh, two or three people are going to be involved repeatedly over a 20 or 30 year period, um, that there was going to be this kind of shifting in and out group. And then the third thing I think would be uh, we might call kind of dialogue with with film history and with different kinds of aesthetic forms in film history. So to have someone um, – who's made films, uh, say, about the 1920s, uh, as well as films that have borrowed the styles of filmmaking from, if not the 20s or 30s, at least from the 1940s, surely, the 1960s and 70s, quite often, uh, as well as some others 
in there too, uh, producing some work that is indebted to 80s style or 50s style. Uh, in 80s, being most uh, Amazon pilot he produced recently or executive produced in 50s style, something like uh, George Clooney's directorial uh, film Good Night and Good Luck. So, uh, experimentation, collaboration, and then these different types of dialogues with film history or a kind of willingness to um, to look at all the different stuff that's out there and then to you know take it into his work and repurpose it and never in a kind of straightforward homage but in trying to push forward the types of things that you can do in film and sometimes in television and other forms too. What do you see are sort of big themes in his work? over his career, things that keep coming up, ideas, um, concepts that he wants to discuss, maybe about society or people. or I guess if we had to go to the max, there were some back in the 90s when uh, a book of interviews with him came out, and he certainly had a much smaller body of work. Um, he would periodically in interviews articulate the theme of um, protagonists who are out of step with their environments. Um, so people who didn't quite fit in uh, for one reason or another. Um, and I definitely saw that across the work in the 1990s, this idea of the protagonist as some kind of outsider. Although, of course, that links up with um, a lot of filmmaking traditions and a lot of storytelling styles uh, where you have to introduce conflict into a narrative um, so the protagonist can't really fit in, uh, that that would be a built-in source of conflict. But it's certainly something that animates uh, things going from, say, sexualizing videotape all the way up through Aaron Brockovich and including the limey, someone who, you know, that film, the limey by its very title, is identifying someone who's out of step with his environment being set in Los Angeles, this outsider figure. Uh, so we see that a lot. And then in the 2000s, I think particularly uh, around the release of the Girlfriend Experiment, um, there was a sense that uh, he said that well, one of the things that he's really been interested in is money and the effect that money has on people. Um, and the idea that you know everyone is um, – beholden to money in one way or another. And I think that nicely informs uh, films like, uh, well, any of the kind of crime or heist films he's done, films like The Underneath, where everyone's bad decisions are decisions uh, that are financially based. Um, two films like uh, Out of Sight, the heist film, where again, like bad decisions made in the name of money, uh, to something like Aaron Brockovich, where you have a whistleblower narrative, um, where you know the big conflict involves fighting against a large public utility um, with a cadre of lawyers who can be paid large sums to you know throw money at the problem. Uh, two genre films like the Ocean series, uh, which are all about negotiations about money. Um, two more recent stuff like The Girlfriend Experience, um, or even films like uh, Side Effects, uh, which are, you know, which is a film about the pharmaceutical industry uh, and about the, some of the deceptive practices that industry engages with to get uh, doctors in collusion with its products. So, um, 
So people out of step with their environments, money. And if I had to uh, add another one into that, I guess I would think about uh, the workings of institutions as seen through um, the eyes of individual protagonists. So again, you look at a film like Side Effects, uh, which is a way of you know giving us a genre narrative but also giving us a film that takes you into particular kinds of institutions, uh, both psychiatry and pharmaceuticals. Or if you look at a film like Contagion about the outbreak of a disease, uh, a film that's less of a kind of disaster movie than about the responsiveness of the medical establishment or medical institutions to that crisis and you know how people are behaving within those institutions. Uh, Aaron Brockovich taking on the legal profession uh, or something like Shea, maybe less about uh, institutions in the sense that we might understand them um, in a vernacular sense, but about thinking about uh, a revolutionary movement or a political group uh, as a kind of organization uh, that has rules and needs leadership and authority is delegated in particular ways so certain tasks can get accomplished. Um, so that kind of using individual stories uh, to tell a larger story about institutions uh, is something that I see across the work. And certainly that we've seen most recently uh, in the television series The Nick, which is very much about the institution of the hospital and then the kind of stories that intersect within that space. You talked a bit about his outside work doing um, painting and, and photography and things like that. And all of this uh, now is under the guise of his retirement from filmmaking. And since you've written about him and, and followed his work, uh, how do you feel about and what do you think about him walking away from going, I'm not going to direct anymore? I was sad because uh, I was always really interested in the film work, um, and the idea that that would come to an end meant like, well, now I gotta like turn my attention. I need to find someone creative who I can follow in a similar way. Um, but at the same time, it seemed like a really good move because uh, he was just such a prolific filmmaker. It was hard to see. It was hard to see ever how he could maintain that level of production to direct as many things as he did, uh, to be involved as a producer on as many things as he did to be participating in these other spheres, to be going off and directing plays uh, or doing writing at the same time, uh, just this kind of relentless activity. Um, at some point, one of the times I talked to him, uh, I suggested that, um, you know, maybe he was a little bit like Fassbender in that respect. Uh, and he said, yeah, just, you know, just with, uh, without all the speed. So I have a sense like, Right, Fassbender, who basically worked himself to death, uh, you know, still Soderbergh doesn't want to be in that position. Um, and at the same time, I think the retirement from filmmaking um, has been a really good thing because it's meant that there's a lot of creative production happening in different ways. And, you know, his reasons for doing it certainly are different than other people's, but I think it's part of, uh, part of a trend where we see a number of filmmakers moving into different sectors, particularly moving into things like television, uh, where they're finding both uh, an, an audience that is interested in the work and then where they're finding uh, a kind of business community that wants to support that work as opposed to the uh, 
the community of film studios or uh, the independent film landscape where, you know, you're basically like starting things completely from scratch, even if you have a reputation with every new project. So it seemed like there was a lot of combat or just negotiation with studios and uh, and distributors uh, around the film work uh, that he created not difficulties necessarily, but took up a lot of time that was not time spent on creative labor and that moving into things like television kind of allowed him to um, to go in new directions, to have a different creative perspective, to not have to worry about the confines of the 100-minute screen narrative or about you know which of the uh, four audience quadrants you can sell that product to. It's interesting because he started out and got his attention, as you were saying, with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was uh, eighty nine ninety, and part of that wave of indie film and, and that all came out of the Sundance at that time and had a huge impact. And that seemed to be where you know one level of Hollywood was going, and that became the place where people could do the creative work. And, and to me, seemed maybe like a mini renaissance of you know what I consider the last great. Uh, um, era in American film, which is the '70s, where you could have those, you could take those kind of risks. And then when we talk to indie filmmakers on the show from time to time, they've often told us, "Well, you know, I can't even get films for five million dollars made anymore, but I can go do these episodic TV shows like Justified or you know Breaking Bad, and, and all of this has opened up television in a way that they say, you know." hasn't been as exciting, television has never been as exciting as this, and reminds them of when they started out during that whole indie boom. So is, is, do you see that as sort of a, as a limiting thing, is that now we've gotten into these you know, $150 million blockbuster um, Marvel comic movies, and that's not necessarily where someone like a Steven Soderbergh would go? Yeah, and he's talked about this. Uh, he gave, I believe it was 2013, you know, after he ceased making features or kind of right on the eve of the release of Behind the Candelabra, which is, you know, well, it's a feature in Europe, but it's television in the United States. Uh, He gave an address at the San Francisco Film Festival um, that basically said, you know, the economic model of Hollywood uh, requires everyone to make only tentpole pictures uh, and that there was no room for the mid-budget picture uh, anything from for him it was more like the uh, 10 million dollar film to the 40 million dollar film the idea that uh, kind of mid-level adult drama that at one point would have been the uh, kind of staple of most studios release calendars was simply unavailable that everything was going to have to be really big or just a total micro-budget paranormal activity type of thing that you could hope for viral success from. Um, so the kind of movies come that were coming out of, say, the Hollywood Renaissance period, a lot of those movies, you know, some of them are uh, quasi-radical youth pictures, um, but a lot of them are straight adult realist dramas that are really character driven, um, that are the opposite of high concept, um, that aren't necessarily star driven or driven by people who weren't stars in the same way. Uh, and it's that kind of filmmaking uh, that people like Soderbergh, I think, have uh, claimed to have found harder and harder to do in the newer industrial environment. That's uh, that if you want to make 
an adult drama, then based on the economics of it, somehow that film has to make $100 million just to break even because the marketing budgets are so inflated just to get these things into the marketplace. So a lot of the work that people were wanting to do was simply being priced out of the market. Uh, And now with television, I think maybe uh, like indie film was in the 90s where there are a lot of people kind of throwing money at the problem and taking risks and then a lot of companies that subsequently went out of business and then some of those other companies kind of consolidated or were absorbed by studios, uh, giving us so-called indie wood. now we're in a state in television where there are a lot of people who are maybe using some of that material as loss leaders, um, places like Amazon where you think you're not – or Netflix where you don't quite know what the business model is and they're not necessarily expecting to be in the black on any given product or project. But you know they can get these things out there and probably five years from now uh, that landscape will have settled quite a bit and a lot of people will have to exit the market or a lot of people who are getting opportunities now um, may not get those opportunities. So maybe we are in kind of a positive Wild West gold rush mentality now and uh, we'll see how long it lasts. But certainly a lot of really interesting creative work is being done there and a lot of filmmakers are working under that system because uh, for the most part they're not having to make – network episodic television uh, that has to produce, say, 24 episodes for a season, but they can do things that have a narrower shooting schedule that's a little closer to a film shooting schedule. I know the current se- the next season of The Nick had about a 70-day shooting schedule, which would be pretty long for a film, uh, but certainly less than you would have for a full series or season of a network television program. So something slightly closer to a film production schedule, um, but not with the same need to yeah hit all the quadrants or to return $100 million at the box office, um, which only a certain type of film can do. And it's usually one that's pretty high concept in a lot of respects, for better or worse. So this episode, we're looking at his film, The Limey, and was wondering, uh, from your research, what do you know about how that film came together? Um, it seems to me that it started with uh, with the script from Lamb Dobbs. I can't think of whose idea it was initially. Um, you asked me the one question about it that is kind of out of my head at the moment. Um, but then involved bringing together a lot of things that had been some of his own pre-existing interests uh, that got pre-funded by Artisan, which was uh, um, at the time an extremely successful studio or was on the eve of its biggest success. They just released the Blair Witch Project, although I think the the Limey started production before that film came out. Artisan uh, then became one of the great sort of footnotes of American film history uh, going into bankruptcy a few years after that. So they couldn't really get a return on what they were doing. Um, but I think it was in that time when uh, there was not as much of an effort uh, or requirement to sell indie films uh, to the wider public. It was perceived as 
a relative success for an indie film, even though it only returned just over $3 million at the box office. Um, but it made the rounds. It got a lot of circulation. Um, it has a lot of things that really make it seem like an independent film, but also a lot of things that I think make it a kind of touchstone work of what we'd start to think of as indie wood uh, in that uh, basically – a quasi-independent film that has elements that would make it legible in the mainstream. Uh, in this case, some cast members with a lot of historical resonance, if not contemporary stardom, uh, people like Peter Fonda in particular and Terrence Stamp, uh, as well as a genre narrative that was pretty straightforward. Um, so you have a lot of kind of arty and experimental flourishes, but all put under the guise of something quite legible, a kind of genre narrative. The film feels like, to me, kind of a nod back to the 60s. I mean, when you look at the casting, I mean, as you noted, you know, Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda and Barry Newman, and also the fact that their characters are kind of looking back on their lives and the mistakes that they've made. We get the feeling that, you know, there really is no good guy in here, and they're all dealing with some sort of battle scars from decades before. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe no good guy, but also not really any villain either. Um, if you think that, you know, our villain figure is maybe Peter Fonda, um, but he's also very much at the center of it. So, yeah, I certainly agree that um, that it really works as a kind of, if not critique of, at least an analysis of the 1960s, um, it's interesting that it wasn't it wasn't really sold that way, which is probably a good thing, uh, you know, unless you're trying to reach strictly the market of kind of baby boomers who were invested in the 1960s. But maybe a sense that that was not necessarily the biggest niche audience for independent cinema, so more sold as a revenge movie. Um, but yeah, I think it works really well as, if not a straightforward homage, a kind of reconfiguration of both the period of the 1960s and some of the filmmaking styles and strategies of the 60s and early 70s, uh, the kind of nonlinearity, moving back and forth in time, um, but this time anchored with a fairly clear character narrative or character subjectivity, um, the use of, as you say, uh, actors from who had careers in the 60s or early 70s, like Stamp and Fonda, and Barry Newman from Vanishing Point, uh, as well as Joe D'Alessandro from the kind of Paul Morrissey um, kind of indie uh, exploitation films, uh, as well as things like using clips from Ken Loach's Poor Cow, a 1967 film. So a lot of like different ways of approaching this particular period of time. Um, one that... Uh, Sorberg would go on to deal with again in some other films, <clears throat> but here I think where he's most clearly in that dialogue with it, uh, where he's uh, borrowing from things like Point Blank, one of the real touchstones for him in making the film. Uh, and I think he described it as, uh, as Nilaimi uh, as Point Blank as filmed by Alain Rene. Um, the experimental uh, kind of late French new wave filmmaker, uh, which is totally unmarketable. Uh, the idea that you would combine the work of a kind of uh, 
high culture auteur from the 60s uh, with that of a beloved 60s crime film that has very little mainstream recognition, uh, but a sense that, you know, he could work those things together and come to terms with sort of what what his own filmmaking aesthetic was going to be. Uh, at this point, you know, he'd made one studio film, and so he was kind of in this middle camp there, uh, and then would go on to make a number of studio films afterward, as well as films that seem very much like independent productions. So I think this is a kind of strong case where we see this merger of those sensibilities uh, and also that interrogation of this historical period, um, but not in a nostalgic or rose-colored glasses type of way. I mean, we get that in the film a little bit uh, with Peter Fonda splitting hairs over what the 1960s was. And he's got that great line where he says, oh, it was really just 66, part of 67. So his personal 1960s is a much narrower one, but a sense that not all the characters in the film share that sensibility uh, that even the young woman to whom Peter Fonda gives that speech is someone who really doesn't have a horse in that race at all and is just kind of humoring him and listen to him splitting hairs about what this period meant to him or what it should mean for everyone. It's interesting, the uh, the French New Wave, because when I saw it the first time, I was like, oh, this is you know uh, probably the most direct um, connection to me because I wasn't as immersed in the new wave when I first saw it in the theater was something like breathless where you have a scene and it's, you know, jump cutty and there's all this other stuff. But then also he has this thing where he'll have a scene, but it'll take place in several places where the, the dialogue is happening. So the background kind of shifts. And I'm thinking of a conversation between, uh, between Terrence Stamp and Leslie Ann Warren where they're in a house and then they're also seen to be walking. And it's the same conversation and it continues. And I think in terms of cutting style, I get this idea of um, maybe a, sub- a subjective point of view, like an internal thought of where the, uh, the characters may be in terms of his use of the edit within the film. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing that keeps it from being too new wavy or too kind of a land rene. Um, I realize I misspoke. He claimed that it was uh, that the limey would be get Carter as uh, as shot by a land rene. Maybe kind of uh, slightly more visible revenge film in the European tradition. Um, but right, that kind of character interiority keeping you from being utterly confused, motivating those cuts. Um, And it seems to me that, you know, a lot of that has to do with the way that sound is used in the film, where these conversations shift location, but there's no break in the sound. So the dialogue continues across those cuts. And even in some of the films that Soberg's made, there are somewhat more linear uh, where the continuity as we move across the cuts uh, is strictly forward in time. We see that similar device being used or we hear that device being used of a sound bridge where character dialogue is actually crossing the cut. Um, But of course, in realist terms, like, well, there's a problem with that unless the character is having the exact same conversation in two different places. Um, But he's giving us a kind of subjective reality in the line where we have the sense that uh, this character is going on about this subject and his mindset is going to be consistent. So even if the location shifts, 
that the the tenor of the conversation uh, and the attitudes and sensibilities behind it are going to be the same across those cuts. You referenced uh, Ken Loach's Poor Cow in the film, and that was a film that I was not familiar with when I saw it and was wondering, um, and to be honest, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I hope to see it uh, before the show, is do does the limey speak to Poor Cow back and forth, and that's part of the sort of like some sort of like updated sequel in some way, or is it just by luck that Terrence Stamp did this film in which he's sort of in prison at one point, and we see people visiting, so he's able to use those images to give us an idea of his background? I would say it's not really in dialogue with Poor Cow as a film, maybe as a style of film. The narrative Poor Cow is very different, uh, and Terrence Stamp's character in the film uh, is really certainly more subordinate. He's not the lead protagonist. Um, I guess the clearest parallel is that um, both of them, that Terrence Stamp's character in Poor Cow is someone who is a relatively new father. He's got a wife and young child and then goes away to prison. Uh, so we have the sense that he misses that uh, aspect of the child's upbringing. Uh, so that kind of sense of, of loss or uh, missed family opportunity is something that informs the limey. Uh, but then the material that uh, – it's brought from Poor Cow. If you ever get a chance to take a look at it, it's very instructive because, you know, he really pulls it into a completely different context uh, with, say, the musical number of Terrence Stamp playing guitar uh, or even the scenes of uh, what the other scene that's borrowed is of his character from Poor Cow uh, walking around with his wife and child. Um, but it's really it's really kind of realigned in a fundamentally different way. Um, and I think, yeah, there was no sense that uh, he was trying to be in a specific dialogue with poor cow um, because that would be uh, that would probably be the work of an obsessive and you'd have a hard time finding your way into it on a film screen in the U.S. where nobody would be familiar with Poor Cow. Uh, you know, it's not, I've never heard any references to it here in the U.K. either, except as a frame of reference for the limey. Um, so it might be seen as kind of obscuritanist to be in that dialogue. Whereas if he were in dialogue with uh, a much better known film, then there might be a kind of sense that there was a need to engage with that uh and instead it's kind of like he just had this convenient thing where that you could use the same way you might use some archival footage of Terrence stamp from the 1960s and build it into your fictional narrative so i think it just it works at the level of archival footage and at the level i think too of trying to match the aesthetic or at least come close to matching it so that the scenes from poor cow um, don't stand out as completely out of place in the kind of chromatic world of the film. I understand that was something that they did have a little bit of a trick of because poor cow is a much more um, desaturated film. And the limey is one that has this like deep, deep saturations, these kind of deep uh, kind of aqua blue greens uh, and these fiery orange reds um, and poor cow has much more of a washed out look. So that was kind of the trick there. Um, but overall I see it as um, 
as kind of a dialogue, but certainly not as an attempt to make a sequel, but as an attempt to kind of build on uh, the 60s-ness and uh, historical distance uh, and maybe the sense of loss of trying to grasp that particular period of time uh, and having it no longer be available or fixed in time as a certain kind of memory like it is for Stamps, uh, excuse me, Peter Fonda's character. When you look at the Limey as part of his overall filmography, where do you see that it sits in terms of, you know, what we talked about in terms of his ideas and sort of development of where he was and where he was going? As I've said a little, I think it sits um, at a place where you see him using things like genre uh, as a structure to experiment. So always kind of coming back to a certain type of uh, generic formula, in this case, the revenge thriller. Uh, And then within that, you know, using it as a springboard to say, do a character study, um, to kind of ramble, to show these kind of loose, casual interactions between characters that aren't strongly plotted that aren't necessarily driving the story forward in the same way. But knowing that we've always got that genre narrative in the background uh, to anchor and structure things. Uh, And that's what you see in a lot of the other films, uh, even the ones that are kind of the most off the wall and experimental, uh, like earlier Schizopolis or later Full Frontal, that at some level, like, well, those are films that, uh, have a structure of comedy that, you know, even as all this weird stuff is happening, uh, there's a kind of comic thrust overall. Um, and, you know, I think the genre elements, you can see it in the Oceans films, too, where you have a heist structure. Um, but really, in a lot of ways, that structure is just an opportunity to stage these uh, banter-like interactions among men and sometimes with women. So I think we see that in the Limey where there's a lot of banter uh, that kind of just brings you into these different characters' world uh, without pushing the plot forward in quite the same hurried way, uh, but that you have this kind of genre structure underlying it. Um, I also think that it works nicely in kind of this indie wood moment as a bridge between uh, what independent filmmakers do and what studios do. Uh, again, in having a genre narrative, um, but also in bringing in a bunch of different performers uh, known for different types of work, often in independent cinema, um, sometimes uh, like a number of 90s films as well using independent cinema uh, to kind of revive the stardom or revive the artistic credibility of some people from the past. Um, So we saw with indie film, uh, with like Pulp Fiction, reviving John Travolta's stardom, um, or actually Peter Fonda's being revived a couple years earlier uh, with the film Yuli's Gold, where he's a beekeeper, you know, after a long series of uh, non-appearances or appearances in uh, really low-grade European film. So we see that with something like The Limey, too, kind of bringing uh, Terrence Stamp back into the fold, uh, of further reviving Peter Fonda. Uh, can't say it was necessarily a real shot in the arm for Barry Newman or anyone like that. Uh, or even bringing in someone like Leslie Ann Warren, uh, whose career was maybe in, in Eclipse, 
a little bit at that time. Maybe his gesture tour within the film, uh, where you know she's playing a kind of pastor prime actress uh, whose kind of key leading role is in a television movie. Um, so I think it, it works at that level of kind of indie woodness of both showing what's possible within the independent cinema while also showing it to be like firmly fixed in an entertainment tradition that could be the kind of film that a studio might release in its most experimental moments uh, or in its most low-key moments. And I guess if I had to add a third thing, what I think, think about the Limey, I think it's really interesting in terms of him kind of building on a collaboration. Uh, it was one of the last movies where he worked with the director of photography. Uh, in this case, with the Limey, it was Ed Lockman, who would then go on to uh, be the DP for Aaron Brockovich as well, uh, and used a kind of similar color palette for Aaron Brockovich, maybe a little bit more washed out in spots. Uh, and after, I think he was still using a DP for traffic, yes, but then he became his own director of photography, um, partly to streamline the process, just so he had one fewer person to have to give instructions to, uh, took over being director of photography and often camera operator himself. Uh, and for me, it's the cinematography of Ed Lockman that Soderbergh's own work as DP uh, seems to have borrowed from the most, the same kind of use of color values, uh, sometimes a similar framing, although Serberg often goes for a kind of uh, off-the-cuff framing that sort of makes things look like an episode of Cops, kind of deliberately so, where you're um, choosing kind of curious camera angles rather than the most um, kind of carefully staged ones. Um, so it seems to me that uh, that Lachman's influence uh, is something worth noting going forward as Soderbergh goes on to be his own DP. Um, but that's just from a viewer's perspective. I'm not sure what he would say about that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you asked at one level uh, how I became interested in Soderbergh. Uh, and initially, you know, each of the films seems so rich that, uh, you know, a lot of people who write books about films uh, devote a chapter to uh, individual films. And you sort of go through a filmmaker's work chapter by chapter with a different film. Uh, and by uh, by the early 2000s, he was making so many films that I thought, well, there's, you can't really do a chapter for each film because this book would be a thousand pages long. Uh, and then he had you know, already begun to do some television work at that time and had done some of the writing. So I kind of had to abandon the film-by-film film approach and just think, okay, uh, maybe I can break this down into different categories of filmmaking about, you know, okay, at one level, he works as a really good model of the way filmmakers are in dialogue with the histor both historical periods and the styles of the past. So looking at all the films he'd made that were set in historical periods or that borrowed historical styles, sort of like the good German, maybe a kind of paradigmatic example of that, where he uh, goes back to not just shooting in black and white, but using the so-called academy ratio, the four to three aspect ratio uh, that was used in the boxier ratio, used in Hollywood films, uh, using uh, camera lenses and lighting styles from the 1940s. So that sense of being in uh, dialogue with uh, 
the historical periods themselves and both the techniques of those periods was one thing that animated it. Uh, another thing was uh, just the very notion of collaboration. What does it mean for a filmmaker to work with other people, um, you know, often in film criticism and film reviews or in the way we talk about films as fans, we, we genuflect before this figure of the director and somehow that person is responsible for all aspects of a film's meaning, uh, which of course is completely belied by the very collaborative nature of filmmaking, the very many hands involved in the pie of putting a production together. So here's a really interesting figure uh, to trace that through, to think as someone who both um, did seem very hands-on and autocratic and wanting to play multiple creative roles, um, but who also surrounded himself with a bunch of both like-minded people and people with maybe different sensibilities uh, who he could delegate tasks to that uh, who could go off and do their own thing. Um, so that strange notion of both trying to do every possible thing, be a director, sometimes a screenwriter, often a director of photography, often an editor, occasionally an actor, um, playing every possible creative role short of writing the music, um, to working with a group of collaborators who could take on some of those roles and do uh, have some of those collaborators continue from film to film or reoccur five films down the line. Uh, and then it was also a way of tracking, uh, I didn't know when I started it, but certainly um, by the end of it, these strong changes in independent film like you say there was a time in the 90s uh, when that was seen as very much a flourishing sector so Serberg you know was one of the people seen to inaugurate that moment uh, one of what one writer is called the Sundance kids people who uh, came of age uh, and who first got notoriety as a result of releases at Sundance in the late 80s and early 90s uh, so we see the indie sector uh, become very buzzworthy in the 90s, uh, become very much the province of studios or their boutique divisions in the early 2000s. Uh, you see a bunch of the companies go under uh, or get shut down by their studio bosses around 2008 with the global financial crisis and the kind of drying up of uh, all kinds of private equity money. Uh, and now this new transition where we have people migrating to the internet, migrating to television, uh, working on different types of creative projects. So someone who, you know, almost zealot-like has been involved in all these phases uh, of transformation of independent cinema, of Hollywood studio productions, of kind of film and TV and media culture more broadly. So, um, so I'm going to try to account for all those different things and think about how creative individuals are able to flourish uh, under those varying and difficult conditions. Is there anything you want to add that maybe I forgot to ask you about? <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about the Limey or any other framings you want for that film. Uh, certainly, you know, every now and then I uh, – Nobody ever asked me, but if I had to, I always think someone's going to ask me someday, like what my favorite Soderbergh film is, and that's always one of the ones that uh, that stands out really well. I used to teach it a lot, and I would always come back to it, and it's one of the more quotable ones, and it's um, 
it's a pretty tight film. You know, it's a small film. I think he thought about it as a relatively small film. You know, it doesn't try to do too much, um, but it gives us a lot of really interesting interactions. Uh, it sort of sets up a kind of interest in women that we see across some other works, sometimes filtered through men, although maybe some of his other films actually, you know, let women be uh, at center stage. Um, it just works on a lot of different levels for me. Uh, and it's just beautiful to look at. Um, I think it took Soderberg a while to find his feet as a director of photography. Um, and looking at something like the limey makes you think, oh, he was really good working with DPs and having other people do this um, who could do so much great uh, kind of both magic hour cinematography and nighttime stuff where you could shoot things uh, really dark for nighttime scenes uh, and still have them register uh, in this great way that, uh, that maybe looked a little bit like some of the films of the late 60s and early 70s uh, when you were able to put things in silhouettes and you know not have a uh, uh, studio producer step in and say, you can't do that. It's too dark. We can't, you know, we're not seeing the money. We're not seeing our characters' faces. So I thought the limey looked really good in that respect. Uh, it just got some beautiful scenes and uses of locations. Uh, and it's just a showcase for all kinds of great acting, uh, both in the lead roles and then uh, the crazy cavalcade of people filling out the supporting roles. Great work for people like Luis Guzman uh, and Nikki Cat and a bunch of other people as well. So, uh, so I was glad you chose that one. Well, really, most of them I would have been happy to work with. Um, but I think it's a really interesting film and that um, – I'd like to see it have more of an afterlife. It certainly did in the 90s and early 2000s, um, but now maybe kind of relegated to footnote status, um, whereas uh, I think it's a really notable film that touches on a lot of different things that were happening at the time uh, and maybe aren't necessarily happening anymore. It's one of my favorites of his. And like you said, for all those reasons, it is quotable. There's so many lines that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, it definitely has a unified style. Once you get hip to the style, I, I'm sure that there are people that watch mainstream Hollywood film that are like, I don't get this. Like, why is it jumping around? You know, stuff. But um, but overall, for me, I think it works that way. And then, you know, I've always felt that the best art works on multiple levels, where you can watch it as a straight genre picture, or you can get all this other stuff that's in there in terms of thematics. And then also, like I say, callbacks in a way in terms of the casting, if you're a fan of that era of American film and even uh, British film because of Terrence Stamp. Yeah, yeah, right. And it doesn't, and it, uh, I think it wears a lot of those things pretty lightly uh, or with enough self-consciousness that, you know, in some ways it's a sixties homage, but it's also very, um, kind of ironic and somewhat self-critical about it without being a damning critique of the period. Um, you know, it works a little bit as, uh, as an industry satire of Hollywood or the music industry, the LA based music industry. Uh, but again, it wears that pretty lightly, you know, it's not really, uh, beating a drum too strongly on that subject. And as a revenge thriller, uh, it works pretty well and kind of anchors us in that world without being a kind of grim get Carter like exercise that has to um, repeatedly rehearse the violent death of an innocent woman to justify something. Um, 
So it kind of you know gives us all those things, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't gorge us on them. Uh, and and as you said, yeah, it works on a number of levels that uh, it's possible you could get confused by it. Um, but even if that kind of uh, nonlinearity, the moving back and forth, was initially a little confusing, you know, it's all anchored, and you recognize the characters. There are no surprises there. So it's able to to do enough within these familiar frameworks. Uh, and to kind of take on enough things without seeming wildly ambitious or confusing uh, that make it a pleasure at a lot of levels. Um, and and at the same time, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to work that hard to be cool uh, in a way that something like uh, a Tarantino, like a Pulp Fiction, uh, would be seen to trying to do. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't have its uh, it's viewers' fantasies kind of written on its sleeve in the same way. Uh, not to say that those films don't offer particular pleasures as well, um, but I think the Limey works, works really nicely in that regard. Um, who knows? Maybe a lot of us can just put ourselves in the position of, like, uh, you know, the uh, uh, kind of difficult middle-aged guy um, who, you know, doesn't have to be cool in quite the same way uh, and who ultimately, you know, gets to be a violent hero. Um, but a lot of ways, you know, a lot of that happening off screen. So it doesn't, certainly doesn't overwhelm us with violence in any respect. You know, this is not a Liam Neeson vehicle in any respect. So we don't have to sacrifice that level of disbelief. Uh, instead, you know, we can just sort of take the pleasure in, uh, these things happening in the gaps, uh, and then instead get the focus on the character narrative and the banter and the interactions uh, that come across really well. Um, although normally I think the screenwriter Lem Dobbs was actually pretty unhappy with how it turned out and claimed that you know he really wanted to work uh, the kind of 60s critique angle a lot harder, that that was there on the page. Um, and he actually articulated that discontent like on the commentary track of the DVD with Soderbergh. So if people are... Uh, not tired of listening to people talk about the film, then I certainly recommend listening to the uh, DVD commentary with Dobbs and Soderbergh um, because they're actually having this debate and someone is basically uh, complaining about the interpretation of his work while the interpreter is sitting right there next to him. Um, and, you know, they've only got the one film in front of them. So I think it's an interesting way for them to kind of talk through how this creative negotiation has happened, um, and then to kind of work through some of the residue of that in a way that you don't necessarily get in some of the more canned DVD commentaries where everyone is uh, talking about what a great time they had and how there was never any friction in the creative process at all. So you actually do hear a little bit about that creative fiction uh, in the one for Lime, as well as the huge number of signposts of 60s and 70s films uh, that they were trying to build into the DNA of this one, uh, but again, which it bears kind of lightly on its sleeve, films like Point Blank or Get Carter, um, where the homage is not um, not so direct and obvious that the film grinds to a halt, but uh, but works as a kind of callback to people uh, who are interested in that sort of material. Um, so it's a it's a great film for film lovers, I guess is my takeaway from that one. 
I think I asked you at the beginning, but uh, I can't remember if I did or not. Uh, what is the uh, the name of the book that you did on Steven Soderbergh? Uh, that book is called Another Steven Soderbergh Experience, Authorship and Contemporary Hollywood. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Rob. It's great to have this conversation. I'll look forward to how it all turns out. My name is Anthony Kaufman. I am a journalist and also now a film programmer and uh, I guess yeah, film journalist, film critic, and film programmer. Where are you currently programming film? I uh, am a uh, programmer at the Chicago International Film Festival. Well, tell me your interest uh, when you first got interested in uh, Steven Soderbergh. Uh, I think I must have first, you know, probably came interested in film school, watching films, um, and then I think what really happened was, as a journalist, you know, I was covering the independent film world pretty, um, you know, in, in in pretty strong detail uh, in the you know early two thousands. Um, and Soderbergh was, you know, kind of a, a guru, you know, not just as a filmmaker, but kind of the things he was saying about the industry and what he was trying to do in terms of changing the industry. Um, I think that was exciting. I think we were all kind of looking to him as a guide. You know, he was the head of the DGA, uh, during this period. Um, he was, you know, trying to kind of retool Hollywood, you know, he had kind of grand ambitions. So I think that was exciting as a, you know, as a, as a journalist covering independent film. As for your book on him, uh, can you give me the title of it and what does it chiefly cover? The book is basically just a collection of interviews, Steven Soderbergh interviews, um, and it covers his entire career from, um, you know, sex lives and videotape all the way to uh, essentially his, the announcement of his retirement from filmmaking. When you're putting together a book such as that, a, a collection of interviews, um, I'm sure that you have to go through and read a lot or maybe even watch and maybe transcribe some of these things and then get them you know, approved, maybe some you do yourself. Um, what is it that you look for when it comes to putting a book together like this? And, and what were some of the key things that you really were trying to focus on in order to give a full view of, uh, of his career and, and who he is and what he does uh, through the book? I think the key was, you know, finding the most in-depth interviews, finding those that, you know, penetrated the, the, the surface. Obviously, um, filmmakers, you know, like Soderbergh and others, you know, they do lots of interviews for their films. Um, there's a few journalists who uh, really clearly tried to go deeper, those that followed his entire career. Um, people like the Michel Simon uh, from Positif in France interviewed Soderbergh for every film, even those that didn't, you know, do very well in the marketplace. Uh, but any time he had a new film, you know, Positif was there and really in-depth Q and A's. Um, so you know, discovering those which were in French and translated for the book for the first time was very exciting. Um, but others in the U.S. who I think really um, understood his work um, in a really profound way, like Dennis Lim and uh, Amy Taubin, 
Um, and, you know, there's just very intelligent conversations about craft and about cinema, uh, you know, with him that uh, were, were great to find. What was it about him and about his work that eventually, you know, had you sit down and go, you know, we should put this book together and this would be a great way to sort of bring across his ideas and, and things like that? Can you kind of talk to me about that process? Well, I think of, of you know, because of my background um, in covering independent film, I wanted to find a leading figure of the independent film movement. I mean, Soderbergh seemed to be a perfect choice. You know, he's credited as kind of starting the movement with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, kicking it off, you know, along with Spike Lee and, and a few others. But uh, he's just such a pivotal figure. And I think the way that he, you know, not only started the independent film movement, but also, again, as I said before, tried to retool and reconfigure Hollywood. Um, one, Not one of these directors who was, would sit back and go into Hollywood and, you know, take the easy route and, you know, hire, uh, I mean, and, you know, I mean, he worked as a hired gun, but I think he worked as a hired gun with a vision. And um, that was, you know, that was exciting. Um, uh, he's an exciting choice. I mean, I think his films, and I, I make this clear in the introduction, his films, even, you know, something as big and flashy and mainstream as the Ocean's films are you know, formally adventurous and daring, you know, people forgot them because they were fun, you know, forgot that aspects of them because they were fun movies, but it didn't uh, prevent Soderbergh from being quite experimental in the way those films were edited. Um, And I think editing in particular, he's been uh, really adventurous um, and, you know, pushing, pushing the envelope on films that, you know, something like out of sight. Um, you know, uh, a regular Hollywood director would 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 never do, and uh, he makes it work. What is it about his work for you that you find you find interesting? I think it's uh, I think it's that formal experimentation uh, with genre films, um, taking something like. Um, Everything from you know the coming of age film to uh, the you know paranoid thriller to uh, um, the you know big Hollywood entertainment and injecting it with um, a uniqueness of vision and also a great um, understanding of character. I've always loved in Soderbergh films is how the the smallest fringe character is always so fully developed and comes across like a real human being. Um, that's always so exciting. I think to me, it's, uh, you know, and I don't think it's something that people talk about too much, uh, with regards to his work, but I, I, I've always loved that. I mean, I think, but I, I you know, just, it, I, you got to go back to craft. And I think that's, what's so exciting about his work. He is such a, such a, talented supreme craftsman you know i mean i think if you if you consider also the level of uh, authorship uh, you know that he brings to every film right he he often has worked as both the cinematographer and the editor on his projects um and the fact that he can you know go from a che um to a side effects you know 
to an Ocean's Eleven to to uh, behind the can- candelabra. I mean, there's such a versatility there, um, and and contagion, you know, and haywire, an action film, you know, um, but they're also meticulously constructed. Um, and so I, you know, it's funny. I don't think, and I think he would agree that you know his films. You know, I, I don't think I've ever cried. You know, uh, after watching a Soderbergh film or during a Soderbergh film, you know, it's not that kind of um, emotional satisfaction that I, you know, get sometimes from films. Um, I think, though, they're they're moving in an aesthetic way. You talk about how he was able to do all of these various sort of, you know, takes on genre or twist them in in particular ways, and and, and in one way, I think about. Um, uh, another filmmaker that that people will say is you know sadly he's passed, but someone like Stanley Kubrick who would I think kind of do the same way. I mean, the real s- superior craftsman in that way in terms of the work. But when you look across his um, all of the films that he's done, do you see any big reoccurring themes or ideas that that seem to keep popping up with his work? Although I don't think it's so obvious. Um... I do think that um, you often see characters who are uh, out of their element. Um, you know, whether it's like a literal fish out of water, like the limey character, um, or someone who's kind of psychologically at odds with their surroundings, like uh, Solaris. Um, I think that there is this sense of, um, you know, alienation, disillusionment, um, something like the underneath or Kafka, um, you definitely have, um, you know, characters who are struggling to, you know, find themselves, uh, struggling to sort things out, struggling to understand their surroundings. I mean, see that in like contagion too, you know, uh, uh, this, um, you know, global pandemic thriller, um, same thing with Matt Damon's character, or the informant, which is like this crazy, you know, comedy um, about a guy who's essentially self-deluded, um, you know, totally at odds with his surroundings, totally, um, uh, yeah, such an odd character portrait. And you know, and and if you look at his most personal film, Schizopolis, it's about you know this uh, crazy figure who is. Um, so uh, dislocated and, you know, uh, so, um, uh, what's the word? I mean, like language, the character, you know, can't even quite understand language or language becomes uh, outside of of, uh, uh, understandable, uh, you know, comprehension. You know, it becomes almost, uh, you know, Dadaist. So I think um, that for me is is um, one of the, you know yeah I think that for me is one of the central themes I mean like Che you know is a, a, a character who's sort of out of time out of his element um, you know this extraordinary figure this legendary figure um, and I think in some ways he he falls into that too obviously doing a book of interviews with a director you get a lot about the work but i was wondering do you find that uh maybe from a personal aspect that you know you were saying these characters are sort of out of place out of time um is there some sort of personal aspect that you think 
of that within himself uh, that you find in his personality through these interviews or the or the things that you've read that maybe that's a you know some sort of psychological thing that he's working out through the film. I mean, yes and no. Uh, with with Soderbergh, I would stay away from psychologizing too much. Um, he, you know, he acknowledges in Sex Lies and videotape interviews early in his career that, you know, he's a little bit like this Graham character, again, another sort of alienated um, guy, disconnected from people, disconnected from uh, the world, um, trying to understand people, that he was a bit like that. Um, he was a bit of a, you know, prick when he was younger. Um, but, you know, again, I, I, it, it's hard to... Um, I think it's hard to say. Um, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't want to get that, you know, personal. I mean, I think he said in some interviews that these that that type of character is, is you know, similar to who he is. Um, but I wouldn't want to go too far. I can understand. You touched a little bit on it that the book does cover up until. Um, his retirement and wanted to ask you, what did, what do you make of his retirement from film? Although he is working in other areas of arts. Yeah. I mean, I think he says it, you know, he's made it pretty clear that uh, one, he felt like he had done pretty much everything he wanted to do with that medium. Um, So I think that's, you know, that's part of it. I think he felt like he had, you know, he had done all those experiments um, that he wanted to do with editing and, you know, with point of view. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I feel like he he, he didn't want to be a director who was just churning out stuff that wasn't interesting to him. Um, so I think, you know, I give him credit for you know wanting to end on a on a high note um, and not being you know a hack director, which he never wanted to be. Um, and also just the way that the industry has changed. I think he just became disillusioned with it. He tried to change Hollywood. Um, he tried to make uh, movies like the Hollywood of the you know the new Hollywood of the late sixties and seventies. And I think he just became frustrated with the the number system and the you know. The, basically that the whole development process where um, vision is uh, removed from a, a film, you know, where uniqueness is removed from a film just to get uh, the highest, you know, audience scores. Um, so I think he became frustrated. And um, again, I, I, I don't know, I give him credit for um, being bold enough to just step away and say this isn't working anymore. This week we're talking about the limey and was going to ask you, what was your first interaction with the film? When did you see it? And uh, what were your thoughts then? And what do you think of it now? I must have seen it when it came out. I honestly don't recall exactly. Um, but I, and I don't, I don't think I remember exactly my feelings when I first saw it. But I think, I think the general you know, view on the film is that, um, you know, I, I seem to remember, you know, it was exciting to watch it for the same reason it's exciting to watch some, uh, any number of movies that are trying to do something different. Um, you know, you have a fairly conventional, you know, get Carter type scenario and yet, um, through the editing and, you know, through, um, through his visual storytelling, it's something different and unique. So that's, um, I think that, you know, 
that's what I felt then, and I, I still feel that way. Um, I rewatched it last night, and you know, I think it's totally daring in terms of uh, uh, the you know non-linear type linear storytelling. Obviously, he mixes it up, um, and it's you know, it's kind of a um, a mood piece. Uh, you know, this vision that uh, Soderbergh discusses in interviews. Um, this, let's see what I, I picked it out from uh, from the book here. Um, let me see. Where's the quote? You know, I was uh, I had been dreaming of making a film where there would be no end to the dialogue, where the last sentence and the scene would be to the first sentence of the next scene. It would have been like one inter- in- uninterrupted. Let me do that again. It would have been like one uninterrupted conversation that would cut across the three temporal levels, a verbal flow analogous to the interior monologue. So that, um, I think that's exciting. And I think he, you know, realizes that. And, you know, that he said that in an interview earlier on in his career. And clearly with the line, he uh, brings that dream to fruition. He was talking about that structure. And the, the one thing that I remember in the early reviews and when I first saw it was, you know, in the theater when it came out and, 2000 and I wasn't as big of a film student then in terms of the amount of stuff that I had seen but the one thing that really hit me was it did remind me of a lot of French New Wave film and when you look at the interviews and the things that he said um, around the the making and publicity of the film um, how did he react to to that kind of stuff and his feeling was he deliberately trying to do those kind of things or was he really going for something else I think that the better inspiration comparison is uh, Richard Lester, Hard Day's Night. Um, um, I think that that for him was a uh, you know an inspirational model, kind of freewheeling uh, approach to film and to um, time in film. Um, I think that um, obviously with the films '60s. 70s references um uh there is this you know dream of of uh, of of that you know bringing that kind of influence to the film um and you know obviously he mentions Alan Renee um who I guess I guess is Alan Renee considered part of the French New Wave I guess he is um although I don't know I think we think of He's not the first filmmaker we think of, right? But um, but definitely a filmmaker that played with um, played with time, played with chronology. Um, so I think all those all those are influences. And it's, it's interesting too, you know, um, because that is, you know, stylistically. I mean, even if you are talking about Richard Lester and Hard Day's Night, I mean, that's the 1960s. And then when you look at the casting of the film, Terrence Stamp, Peter Fonda, Barry Newman, you know. Um, it's that era. It's that era of British and American film from the late 60s and early 70s and that feeling of experimentation. Um, what sort of things was he saying, and or maybe even your own take on that casting in, in a way? Like, what do you think he's trying to do there? Yeah, well, I think he's obviously trying to... Um, I think he's trying to do two things. Um, one is that the, the movie is a kind of about... Um, the, the disillusionment um, of the the '60s um, moment um, and an idealized '60s moment that 
that you know may never have existed. Um, so I think part of it is is about disillusionment. Um, again, a recurrent sort of our theme. So obviously he wants to evoke that period with the the casting and with the style of the film. So I think that that's um, definitely a part of it. Um, and of course the the flashbacks being this actual 1960s um, Ken Loach film, Poor Cow. Again, um, is an obvious reference to this earlier period, but I think it's the film is not um, glamorizing that 60s period. I think it's as much about like the you know the the false hope associated with that period and the disillusionment that followed. There's a great line which I didn't remember the first time I saw it, but something about how you know the uh, the heyday of the 60s. It wasn't really the 60s. It was late 67 and 68. You know what I mean? So it's like really this finite period of time and, you know, people tend to romanticize it. And the film is obviously not a romanticized vision of anything. Um, it's a pretty bleak, you know, picture of um, these two men who've kind of failed on their dreams. Is there anything about the limey that that stands out for you when you look across um, Soderbergh's overall filmography as um, something that's different or maybe a signpost to where he was transitioning, something new? Yeah, I think that period was definitely a period of transition where he was letting loose. Um, I think Schizopolis is really the turning point, um, which is, uh, I'll have to look at the filmography. Um, how many years before Schizopolis? So, yeah, a couple of years later. I mean, I think Scythopolis obviously is this small independent, you know, film that he kind of threw together at the last minute. And then with the Limey, he's obviously trying to bring this to um, a, a bigger level, a more mainstream level. So I think that um, in some ways it is a turning point. I don't think with without the Limey, he could have made the Ocean films because in the Ocean films, he's, he's essentially playing with chronology in similar ways as uh, the Limey, but it's just more uh, accessible in the ocean films. So I was, you know, uh, a sounding board or, uh, you know, uh, it was a test. Um, as in, I think most of his films are like tests for for experiments that he's trying to, to work out. Um, I, my guess is that the film doesn't work for everyone, but I think it worked for him and showed him that he could pull that off and he could play with that and continue to play with that throughout his career. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, great. All right, we're back. Thanks to authors Mark Gallagher and Anthony Kaufman. You can find out more about their books over at our website, projection-booth.com. So this week we are talking about Steven Soderbergh's The Limey from 1999. So we've mentioned a few things as far as influences and things that we were reminded of as we were watching the film. But yeah, there's a whole lot going on with this one. And I know that, Rob, you mentioned Point Blank, and I definitely saw you know that that scene I was talking about earlier with him kind of slow-mo going across that wall mm -hmm. kind of reminds me of Lee Marvin when he's 
kind of marching towards the camera in that never-ending march with the hallway. click of the, the oh yeah, yeah the click hallway. of the shoes. Man, I love that. Yeah. I love that freaking yeah. movie. I don't know why we haven't covered that one yet. Maybe uh-huh. just because I I've, I'm intimidated by it. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about it on our um, our episode related to um, Prime Cut. So. So we probably have to bring back our, our good friend to talk about Lee Marvin because he's the big Lee Marvin fan. I bet you're the big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, me too. I love that game. I also saw a lot of Git Carter in the film, which is kind of interesting because one of the early things, because apparently Lem Dobbs had written this script or versions of it a long time ago, and one of the early things that he was thinking was it would be good to have Michael Caine in this, which I totally think fits as far as the whole idea of this almost being a Git Carter type sequel, mm-hmm. even though I know that wouldn't be possible because of the end of Git Carter. But anyway, I really think that there's a lot of this, especially with if folks haven't seen Git Carter, you need to. And I'm talking about the Michael Caine version. I wouldn't necessarily recommend the Sylvester Stallone version, though that does have a really good soundtrack. But the soundtrack for the original Get Carter is just as good. Just the idea of Michael Caine in this film. Oh, like, yeah. I've got flashbacks of Steve Coogan uh, in the trip. And <laughs> and I'm, I'm tempted to kind of do a little Michael Caine right now because, you know, I could just hear be like, tell me about Jenny. Well, broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are so wrong. And you can look at my live video for proof, because that's the very thing I don't do. I say that he used to talk like that. Do you, Michael Caine? Okay. I say, Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s, right? But that has changed. And I say that over the years, Michael's voice has come down several Octave, let me finish. And all of the cigars and the brandy, don't let me finish, can now be heard. Okay. A, I've not fucking finished in the back of the voice and the voice okay. now. Will, I've still not finished the voice. You're panicking. I've, you know, because you look stop. like you're about to bloody talk. Let me finish. Right, so, Michael Cates voice now in the Batman movies and in Harry Brown. I can't go fast because Michael Caine talks... Very, very slowly. Right, this is how Michael Caine speaks. Michael Caine speaks to his nose like that. He gets very, very specific. It's very like that. When he gets loudly, it gets very loud indeed. It gets very specific. It's not quite nasal enough the way you're doing it, all right? You're not doing it the way he speaks. You're not doing it with the kind of... And you don't do the broken voice when he gets very emotional. Well, he gets very emotional indeed. She was only 16 years old. She was only 16. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. That's Michael Caine. <laughs> well, as there are, what, three or four instances in here where Terrence Stamp is using some of the Cockney slang. The first one is the best one. I'm going to have a butcher's round the house. Where you going to butcher? Butcher's up. Look. so as that's coming up and there's a few other things you know he's he's my new plate or my new china plate or whatever yeah i'm thinking of michael kane and um mike meyer in what was it the third austin power film where they're having that whole 
Cockney slang, like the crazy, the like taken off. to the the eleventh level with their their Cockney slang discussion, which was just fantastic. <laughs> Listen, Dad, if you are going to talk about naughty things in front of these American girls, then at least speak English, English. All right, my son. I could have had it away with his cracking Judy, my old China. Are you telling pork pies in a bag of trout? Because if you are feeling quiggly, why not just have a J. Arthur? What, Billy? No, mates. Too right, you. Don't you remember the crembo din din we had with the grotty scotch mm. bin? Oh, the one that was all sixes and sevens. Yeah, yeah, yeah she was a travelling striper. The Morris dancer lived up the apples and pears. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, she was the barrister that became a yeah. bobby and a lorry. And they gave her the Gatling gun in the bottom of St. Regis tea kettle. And then she sat on a turtle. <laughs> oh, God, we had some good times, eh? We had some good times, eh? Wonderful times. Good. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. But yeah, Get Carter, definitely this whole idea of a man coming back to town from being away. In that one, he's, you know, living someplace else, uh, living in London, I believe, and kind of living high in the hog down there, and then coming back to the old town and seeing what happened to his brother kind of different as far as you know the locations and the meanings of the locations and everything you know he's coming back to a very familiar place in here whereas wilson is coming to someplace completely different he's that fish out of water now but i can really see it as far as that investigation and just that you hurt a member of my family now i'm going to hurt you and that single-minded dogged pursuit of whoever did this i'm going to find out and i'm going to take care of them i did not get a chance to see poor cow tell me more about poor cow well poor cow is ken loach's first feature film it's kind of interesting to watch because terrence stamp's character is named dave in the film and ken loach throughout his career has done a lot of like social realism films so it's like poor and working class brits and even scots at one point and just sort of like their day-to-day lives. And really what the film is about, it's about a young woman who, when we first meet her, she's giving birth to her first child, and then she's married but then gets divorced, and it's 1967, it's swinging London, and all of sort of the things that she goes through as a single mother getting mixed up with men. There's a lot of sort of relationship stuff in here, and it's all told through her point of view. As, you know, a divorcee, a single mother, dealing with relationships, dealing with abusive boyfriends, dealing with criminal boyfriends, played by Terrence Stamp as Dave, who's part of sort of this gang of guys. And she, as you see through the various flashbacks in the Limey, they have a relationship together. He ends up going to prison. Well, the thing that's funny is how Soderbergh uses the shots and crops certain shots, especially the um, the singing of colors in the film, where... The child is actually a little boy. It's not a little girl. So I'm trying to figure out, he must have shot the inserts of the young Jenny on like old stock or desaturated it or something like that to kind of make it look like it was from that era. He's in there and he shows up several times where he ends up going to prison and that's where you see him sort of like in prison and having the conversation and those shots are used. But he's not really a main character and his character is quite different than um, than Wilson in a lot of ways. But what's nice, like I said, is that whole kind of idea of Eisenstein montage theory that if you take this image and you put it next to that image, then therefore the two images together have a new meaning. And just being able to use that in a way is, I guess, kind of what I like about collage 
or even like hip hop music in a particular way where you can take two ideas that don't necessarily fit together in any sort of formal sense and you can create a third meaning out of them by putting them together. It's, it's interesting how Soderbergh uses that. I, I think it's a good film. I think it's kind of dated, but I would say that it really is sort of a um, early kind of like woman's lib kind of film, you know, where she's trying to make it on her own and, you know, she's having false starts and she's standing up to abusive boyfriends and things like that. So, so I would say it's, it, it's quite a good film. And, and I also heard um, from some stuff I read online and I can't remember if this was on the commentary track, unlike you, you had a chance to listen to the commentary track. I was too busy to listen to it again, that Soderbergh had a deal where he wanted to license these pieces from the film, but he didn't know exactly what he wanted to use until he got into the editing room. Mm-hmm. And I think Warner Brothers in the States owned the rights to the film. And they told him, well, we, you can't license the whole film. And he was like, well, I don't know what I want to use. And they're like, well, too bad. And then supposedly he either wrote a letter or he talked to like the head of the studio and said, if you don't let me license the whole film and then use what I want, I'll never direct a movie for your studio. And I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like a great story. (laughs) Even if it isn't, it's a great story. Well, yeah, just imagine if Soderbergh, instead of Poor Cow, had gone back and used Superman 2 in some of those scenes (laughs) of Terrence Stamp. I mean, mean, he could have, I guess, maybe gotten away with certain scenes out of something like The Collector, because The Collector was around the same era. It was like, what, 68, 69? But that one's a little more sinister. That's kind of like, you know, um, Peeping Tom or something. You know, it's a little more dark. What was the one where he had that crazy blonde hair? Was that Toby, Toby Dammit, or was that uh, Teorama? Oh, yeah, I think that was Teorama, yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 Which I want to do one of these days. I want to do a, like a double feature of Teorama and Visitor Q. I think that would be a good show. Yeah, which, of course, would be a Return to the Well, the uh, Pasolini Well, without, of course, all the uh, fecal matter. <laughs> well, I think we get plenty of uh, bodily fluids in Visitor Q. If it holds up to any Takashi Miike film, it'll definitely have a lot of bodily fluids. And <laughs> it's just a matter of which ones and in what amount. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about the influence of the new wave. And I think that this is a way of using the edit in a very particular way that's different than what Godard was doing in Breathless or in even something like... Um, Perle Fou, which I had already referenced, which is done more for, for humor's sake. And most of his films um, of that era, he was using it in that way. He wasn't using it like we were talking about to kind of have forward and backward and internal life, you know, sort of emotional understanding at the same time that we see somebody talking. For example, that whole scene between Terrence Stamp and Leslie Ann Warren which takes place both outside, like on a pier when they're walking, and then also inside the house when they're sitting there talking. So there's this idea of taking one set of dialogue and putting it in two different places. When it just goes to show, I mean, you know, the the whole idea of Soderbergh, you know, being an editor first, and then, you know, he's been out of quote unquote, the business, or at least like, you know, not in the director's chair for at least a little bit now. Yeah, he's one of those... F- People who say when they retire, they retire. I keep hoping that he'll be like a, a Kevin Smith or a Stephen King and just keep coming back. You know, he's the one I want to come back. <laughs> Kevin Smith, Stephen King, you go ahead. You can sit it out. If you want to retire, you go right ahead, baby. Right ahead. I really don't need to read another horrible Stephen King ending, and I don't need to see a sequel to Tusk. Thank you very much. Anyway, 
unfortunately, he's not directing right now, but he is still working. He's doing these amazing things over at his website. He's he's actually now doing like experiments and editing, like long form kind of stuff. Like he did a basically a fan edit of Heaven's Gate. You know the the but- speaking of Butcher's Hook, the Butcher's Cut of Heaven's Gate, and then he took uh, Psycho, the original, and the uh, horrible Van Zant version and kind of did a mashup of those and some comparisons of how some things were shot. I mean, overlaying some things. The one nice thing about the original Psycho was so much of it was shot in, you know, one shot or like a shot reverse shot kind of thing. So you can almost cut back and forth between the, what was it, 98 or 96 version and the um, the 60 version, like back and forth with, you know, just having older actors talk to new, to, uh, to, to old, to new, and vice versa, which is just kind of uh, an interesting thing that he did. But he's doing all these kind of fascinating things over on his website. So he's he definitely knows when it comes to, my point is, and I do have one, is that he knows his montage so much and just the way that he's able to use that for this film is just incredible you know and we talked about like the the point blank thing with that just that shot of him coming down the hallway of Lee Marvin coming down the hall and that the the clicking of the heels and everything and the way that that cuts when that finally changes from that shot to the next shot and he's basically in the door like with the ex uh, or well soon to be ex-wife you know just right there it's just like he's coming out of nowhere and just the way that that stuff is cut together just works so perfectly or like the scene in point blank where the music is playing and the guy is screaming this kind of scat music and all this stuff and those screams kind of playing against this fight that lee marvin's having behind the stage and everything just so smart and i think that the limey is just one of those things where he's just you know it was soderbergh firing on all cylinders so you also had a chance to not only listen to the commentary but to also read the script so what do you see as the big differences you know the script the script that i read definitely was not the early drafts i mean i talked about how dobbs had written really early drafts of this thing like back when robert aldrich was still alive lem dobbs like was trying to get a script to him kind of thing but you know there were when the script that i was reading had all the revisions listed on it as far as like while it was actually in production so it had already started to change quite a bit but it did still have things like the um the the Anne margaret scene and it had references to wilson having a boss which was interesting it was almost like he was on vacation in the u.s at this time or Maybe he, you know, just took leave of absence or whatever <laughs> and came over. I don't really see him putting in, you know, uh, his vacation request and waiting for his boss to approve it or anything. But there were things like that, which I found interesting, too, because um, there's this real subtext going on in the Dobbs draft that I read about workers and bosses and it's interesting to me um there was one change in particular that i found fascinating that when uh wilson comes and meets eduardo the louis guzman character eduardo is wearing a chairman mao t-shirt and so you know of course we're talking about workers rights now and all this kind of stuff but in the movie 
Soderbergh changed it to a Che Guevara t-shirt, which was hilarious because we know that in just a few years after this, he's going to be making that big two-part Che film with Benicio Del Toro. So it was kind of a nice like flash forward kind of in Soderbergh's career. But that stuff, I think, kind of gets lost. You know, the, the boss is definitely not there and all this kind of stuff. So that necessarily isn't you know, part of what happened with the Limey. But again, I think what's there is perfect. So hearing the grousing of Dobbs on the (laughs) the audio commentary, I mean, it is one of the best audio commentaries, even though they do some real kind of fuckery with the audio that I'm not real appreciative of. And like the, it starts off with this weird montage where it's like really like intense kind of stuff. And I get, you know, it's mirroring what's happening in the movie, of course, but Mm -hmm. For me, it was just like, yeah, just shut up and let these guys talk and let Dobbs just grouse about this stuff. <laughs> and just basically just ripping on Soderbergh so much of the time. One other thing before I forget, one thing that I found fascinating is that the guy who picks Wilson up or the, the um, cab ride over to Eduardo's place, the uh, Dobbs actually takes very big care to show us the name of the driver of the taxi, which was Edward Ford, which is funny because Dobbs has been working on this Edward Ford script forever. I mean, it's one of those like great unproduced screenplays in Hollywood kind of thing. So I found that was a nice little nod to himself inside of the screenplay. <laughs> From what I remember as a commentary track, it was quite a good listen. It's been a while since I took a listen to it, but you know, I have to say that's one of the things that I really miss about watching movies either as, you know, files or, you know, obviously streaming on Netflix is that as far as I know, I don't think Netflix is throwing up audio commentaries on these things, which it took years and threats of uh, lawsuits for them to even put uh, captions on their films. So yeah. audio commentaries, I think, are, are a little beyond them just yet. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing that uh, I'm, I'm sad about is the physical media starts to go away, specifically um, DVDs and Blu-rays. Well, and to even go farther with Netflix, when you rent a movie from them, like I finally gave up The Ghost and I'm not getting the physical media from them anymore. But when I was getting the physical media and what kind of drove me away from them as my provider for those DVDs was that they would send you out these rental versions of films. So there were certain movies where it's like, oh, wow, I really want to see this movie and I want to hear the audio commentary. And then the disc would arrive and it would say rental version on it. You put it in and it's just the movie. That's it. Like for some reason, I really liked the movie Hannah that came out a few years ago. And I was like, wow, I want to hear the audio commentary for this. This is awesome. And you go to, I mean, the special features are still listed on the menu and everything, but you go there and it's just like nothing happens. And then I look at the disc and sure enough, rental version. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, man. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Ugh. Ah, frustrating. But yeah, audio commentary for this one, really good. And it's funny because at one point, Soderbergh, you know, because Soderbergh and Dobbs had worked together before on Kafka, which I think I was one of like five or six people that ever saw that in the movie theater. (laughs) I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think too many other people did. And it's funny because this is their, the Limey is their second time together. And at one point in the auto commentary, Soderbergh's like, well, we'll work together one more time. And sure enough, they did. They, uh, Dobbs and um, Dobbs worked on Haywire with Soderbergh, which I still haven't seen yet. For some reason, like somewhere around 
bubble, I guess. I kind of gave up watching Soderbergh films, and mm. now after he's retired, I'm just like, okay, I got to treat each one of these like a little special gift. You know, I don't want to <laughs> unwrap it too early because he's not going to keep making movies anymore. So yeah. uh, I saw Contagion. I saw some of the other films, the bigger ones that were out. Of course, I saw Ocean's Eleven, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there are other ones where I'm just like, eventually I'll get to the girlfriend experience. But right now I just kind of want to wait. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll see side effects in a few years. You know, I'm just, I'm stretching it out for now. Why? At least until Jowski has me watch all of Soderbergh's stuff for Geek Juice. Damn you, Jowski. Damn you, Jowski. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. right we're looking at alien 3 where the alien is hiding in the most terrifying place of all sigourney weaver's body cavity wait a minute that's not terrifying is that scary to you well i'll I'll tell you one thing that's terrifying the cost of things my good man oh geez have have, have you looked around recently have you noticed the cost of things well i mean okay maybe gas is a little cheaper now than it was a year ago but like everything has gone up and this is why we're asking you right now do me a favor like, do this with me. If you're at work or you're at home or something like that, go to your computer and go to projection-booth.com. And then I want you to scroll down. Like, you see all of this stuff where it's like, there's the latest episode, which should be limey. If not, whatever. And then popular episodes. You see all those lovely popular episodes over to the side. Feel free to listen to those. Then you have, like, the Twitter feed. And right under the Twitter feed, it says sponsors. And you know who the top sponsor is? That's you, because you can hit the donate button, and you can give to the projection booth through PayPal. And uh, we have some friends who uh, have set up a monthly where they give a couple of bucks each month through that PayPal. It comes off their credit card or however they want to do it, and uh, it helps to pay for all of the things that we do. For example, hosting fees, membership to IMDb Pro. Um, Mike has, you know, I, I think I told you before, like 37 kids. I mean, it's insane. And like... We have these costs that need to be taken care of. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got the monkey on my back. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, help us to continue to bring you quality film programming each and every week here on the Projection Booth. Just go to projection-booth.com. Go down, find the button that says Donate on the right rail, and uh, do it through PayPal. And you know what? We'll be eternally grateful to you, and, um, you know, we won't be seeking revenge. At least not yet. Yellow is the color of my true love's hair in the morning when we rise in the morning. 
When we rise, that's the time, that's the time I love the best. Blue's the color of the sky in the morning. When we rise, in the morning. When we rise, that's the time. That's the time I love the best. Green's the color of the sparkling corn in the morning. When we rise, in the morning. When we rise, that's the time. That's the time I love the best. Feeling that I get when I see her. Mm-hmm. When I see her, uh-huh. That's the time. That's the time. I love the best. Without thinking, mm-hmm. without thinking mm-hmm. of the time, of the time when I've been low. You come back down here again, Pop, and we'll kill you. You understand? This is private property. We will shoot you, fucko. Do you get it? Fucking old fart come down here, big dangerous gun. Yeah, we're quaking. We're quaking. <laughs> hey, you come on back. You come on back and visit trespass, okay? We look forward to it, asshole. Stupid English fuck. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.